Well, hello, everybody. It's uh, Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Back after a fortnight, I guess since the last time we had a chat. Sunday, August the 12th. Shortly after 4 o'clock, uh, it's 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, plus assorted technical difficulties, bad sound on Skype, and annoying hold music on Gizmo. So, uh, thank you so much for joining. Um, I'm going to just do a short introduction, and then we shall uh, go to... Um, people who have questions, comments, issues, or problems, uh, criticisms, uh, or other ways that they'd like to fill the gaping void of podcasts that has been Free Domain Radio over the past two weeks. So, uh, I, um, I confronted my first uh, abuser, actually, uh, in a public setting. Um, I just looked down. I was actually abusing myself, um, and uh, people were staring. But so what happened was, Christina and I went to see a tourist attraction, and there was a family coming out of a car. There was this big, burly fellow, and his wife, and two uh, children, about uh, two years apart. I would say one of them was about eight or nine, the other one was about ten or eleven. And they, um, um, the children, uh, the, I think it was the youngest boy was uh, whining and crying and, and obviously terrified. You know, I mean, you see so much of this when you actually see families' interaction. I just take a look at the picture of Britney Spears' kids. <laughs> Stress and tension and fear that goes on in these children's lives. Really quite terrifying. And this, uh, the father was snarling at his, uh, his youngest son, you know, saying, I've just about had it with you. You've been whining this whole goddamn trick. Uh, trip, uh, you know, we're going to turn around and go right back home, and you were just a rotten kid, and, you know, was really snarling at uh, this kid. And, of course, it really uh, mars this, and this is one of the reasons why going out to any kind of tourist spot or places where there are children uh, is, I mean, it's wonderful to see the kids and so on, but you always face this risk, and I don't think I've ever gone to a tourist attraction or a place where there's lots of kids without seeing at least one kid be uh, verbally or physically maltreated in some horrible manner. It really does put a bit of a pall over the day. And suddenly you wander into the gulag of childhood that uh, far too many children inhabit. Anyway, so um, we got out of the car, and um, um, the mother was taking the, the boys towards the gate, and the man was standing by his car. And I walked over to him, and I said, Are you okay? And he actually did seem a little bit abashed, and he said, yeah, I'm fine. And I said, you know, I don't mean to get into your business, but you know that that is not how you should be treating your children. Right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, but it was just, it's been a 16-hour drive, and they've been whining the whole time. And I said, well, I understand that. I really do. I understand that. But you can't be calling your kid a rotten kid. You can't be yelling at them. You're the adult. Like, yeah, but you've been, been in this car for this, this amount of time. But, but, but you still don't have that option, right, to bully your kids. And there was a sort of silence then. And he just sort of said, yeah. You know, like he was sort of like half between like, yeah, so what? And yeah, you're right. And then he's, uh, he said, I got to go, right? And he sort of walked off. Now, I don't imagine that I've changed uh, anybody's life in interaction. But uh, it was actually a lot easier than I thought, and uh, it was slightly less confrontational than I thought 
and uh, this guy obviously was a little bit fast. I guess the only thing that I was hoping was that when people like see some kind of public resistance or you know, you're humiliating your whole family plus yourself, and of course, most importantly, your children in a public space, that it's not okay, right? That it's not okay that somebody's noticing this. And of course, it's his history, it's his family, it's his parents, it's his parenting, and it's uh, the whole cycle. I did have some mild compassion for this guy um, because he genuinely believed that his children are treating him badly. Like, he genuinely does believe that he has the right to have uh, a peaceful and uninterrupted 16-hour drive with young children. And when he doesn't get that, he genuinely does believe that they are um, acting badly. Right? And he doesn't see that his verbal abuse of his children is exactly what he's criticizing in them, with the only difference being that he's an adult. And a funny thing, of course, is that I, c I really can't understand fundamentally why people like this have children. Right? When you have these kinds of family outings, and I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid, I fucking dreaded these family outings. I hated them. And it's like, hey, let's go to the park. It's like, really? Do we have to go through this whole goddamn charade yet one more time where we go and have a, quote, great time? Because everybody's going to be stressed. Everybody's going to be worried. Everybody's going to be fearful and frustrated and angry. Things are going to end badly. It's like Christmas. I hated Christmas. Because uh, that's when you're supposed to have the Hallmark card moments, the Kodachrome moments of bliss and togetherness and so on. I hate it. Whenever the standard of happiness was raised, my family always turned into a bunch of savage uh, monkeys, rabid monkeys. And so whenever it was like, let's go do X, for me it was always like, God, why do we even bother? And for this guy, right, he has two kids, he's a wife, and he's like, let's take our kids to this tourist attraction. Let's get in the car for 16 hours. And of course, how are the kids going to feel about these kinds of family outings? Well, they're going to feel that it's very stressful and it's very risky. And I can see this whole trip in my mind's eye, because we've all been there, I think, at one time or another, hopefully not too often, but, but we've all been there where, you know, you didn't have to pee when you stopped, but suddenly you have to pee now, or you weren't hungry then, but now you're hungry, or, you know, you say something wrong, or you're getting bored, so you're having a game with your brother uh, in the back seat and well, you get too loud or you laugh too hard or you know and then you get snarled at and then you feel tearful but then you're not allowed to blubber and then things escalate and it's like why the fuck do these people have children can't understand that if you don't take joy and pleasure in spending time with them then why bother i mean it's the same question as why people get married to people they dislike it's uh, <laughs> it's a grand mystery but um but anyway i mean not that anybody's sort of got to do what i did but uh, if you do see this sort of thing occurring, and it happens, of course, far too often, then you may feel that um, you want to say something, and, um, you know, you might want to pick the right time. Um, I was sort of of two minds about whether to talk to this guy in front of his kids or not, uh, and I decided not to, because I felt that talking to him in front of his kids would send a positive message to his kids, right? But at the same time, he would feel the desire to attack me uh, because I would be then, quote, humiliating him in front of his children and feel the need to reassert his authority. And, of course, I wouldn't be able to do anything, right? I'm not going to get into a fist fight and, and so on, right? And so what would happen is they would then see somebody try to intervene on their behalf, 
who would then get chased away by an abusive father, which would make them, I think, despair all the more about the possibility of good surviving in a, a hostile and dangerous world. So, so I decided not to, um, but waited until he was uh, a bit more on his own. And uh, I think this is the first time that I've done this. Uh, certainly, Christine and I have seen this kind of behavior before, and we talk it out between ourselves, sort of how it makes us feel uh, afterwards. But this is the first time that I've stepped up to a parent and talked to him about how he's treating his children. And uh, I hope, I hope that it will at least give him some food for thought. It really depends on the individual. Sometimes the smallest nudge can produce enormous changes. And he did, to his credit, right, to his totally tiny credit, did seem abashed by how he was treating his children. So. Anyway, I just thought I'd start off with that a story, and um, uh, anyway, so that was sort of my uh, minor incident. I've got some other stuff to talk about, but I'd sort of leave it open for questions and comments now, because y'all have not had a chance to bounce ideas off the inverted radar dish. So uh, if you have questions or comments, uh, you can either type them into the Gizmo chat window or speak up. Hey, Stop. Can you hear me? I sure can. How's it going? Great, how are you doing? Oh, not too bad, not too bad at all. Yeah, I was just at the uh, the local Costco, which is kind of like a, a big, um, what do you call it, uh, warehouse store, club discount store, whatever, the other day. And they always have those ladies out there selling the uh, sample, not selling, but just handing out free samples of all the food. And uh, one of them was like one of those little miniature bagel things that you bake and, you know, they're like covered with pizza sauce and stuff like that. And this one, you know, this big dude with his little kids, he was pushing them around, and he had, uh, I think two of them were sitting up in that, uh, the shopping carts, you know, a little kid seat thing. And uh, I, I didn't see it happen, but I guess he handed uh, one of these bagel things to this little kid who, had, who couldn't have been, I mean, he couldn't even have been two years old, I guess. And the kid, you know, put it in his mouth, and it was too hot, so he dropped it. And then... His other brothers were still uh, eating theirs, so this little kid, of course, drops this bagel thing and falls on the floor, and he starts crying and wants another one, but his dad said, no, you dropped it, time to go. And this kid just wow. starts falling, and it just absolutely broke my heart, because I remember things like that happening to me when I was a little kid, too. And I'm thinking, you know, here's a guy who picks up a piping hot thing, hands it to this little kid, and then you know, for all intents and purposes, punishes the kid for when it burns him because, you know, the, the kid got all excited about this thing, was expecting to have a treat, and then drops it. So now the kid's like, not only does he not get this treat that he was all hyped up about, but now he's starting to blame himself for doing it because he screwed up, right? Right, and, and what's uh, strange, uh, sorry, what's strange too about that and what the kid totally gets down in his little gut is that in the hierarchy of values, his needs rank below free food. Yeah. It's not, yeah. Even, it's not even like, I mean, if you, you give you, we all have the thing where you're holding the ice cream with two hands and the top falls off, and, I mean, you're just left with this crappy little code, right? I mean, we've all had that experience, right? And that's one thing if it's like, oh, I only bought two bucks and I bought you your ice cream, I don't have any more, uh, so, you know, maybe we can come back or we'll get you something at home. But this is free. What does he have to do? Reach over, grab another one, and say, oh, I'm so sorry, and apologize. So I'm so sorry, it was too hot, right? I mean, if I hand Christina a mug of coffee and it burns her hands because it's too hot, then clearly she should have been wearing gloves, and we can have that discussion over and over, honey. But um, no, but I mean, it's like, I'm so sorry, I gave you something that was too hot, 
right? So, but, but the kid now gets that his needs rank below free food, right? That his, his, his needs and satisfying his needs and, and so on, and, and his father satisfying a desire which the father himself provoked, in a sense, by saying, here's some free stuff, that he now ranks below free food, and that's pretty humiliating, too. Yeah, so just going back into the scene now, I was, um, you know, I'm standing there just like, <laughs> my little inner child is just, you know, wailing away just in concert with this, this kid that's being wheeled away, and he's, you know, he's reaching out his cute little grasping hand to try to get another one, and it's, you know, he's just getting further and further away, and he can just, you can see the desperation in his face, and he's crying, and, and so I ran and grabbed one of these things, and I caught up with the guy, because he was really cruising away from here. I actually had to kind of trot to catch up to him, and I just, you know, I said, sir, excuse me, and I just tapped him on the, you know, shoulder, and I said, you know, it's really, you know, it's too bad that, you know, your son dropped that, and, you know, maybe if we cool this one down a little bit, and then you can, he can enjoy it, and he's like, oh, okay, you know, and he's, and so he kind of like blows on a little bit, and then he holds it out for his son. And he says, "Okay, now this is hot. Now, you know, be careful." And so the little kid holds it very gingerly, and you know, you can tell he's being very careful this time. And and um, and he starts calming down immediately. And I'm just thinking, to myself, I mean, I felt good that I was able to to kind of help the kid, but at the same time, I just walking away from that, I just knew that this is the world that this kid lives in, and he's trapped there. And it's just, oh man, it's just really. It really shook me. Well, good for you for acting, for sure. For sure. Um, it's too bad that you couldn't get a larger pizza, microwave it to about 900 degrees, and give it to the father. <laughs> but sometimes you don't have the right equipment on hand, right? So that's tough. Absolutely. Here's a gold bar. It's nearly molten. If you can hold on to it, it's yours. <laughs> so, yeah, there is this... Um, I'm just kind of wondering, is this kind of the uh, <laughs> the world that I'm doomed to live in now, that I, uh, I'm going to be having these awful, painful moments everywhere I go? Is this it? Is this what I've wanted? <laughs> oh, sorry. Didn't I mention that there might be a downside? <laughs> <laughs> sorry. The truth now has become a hot pizza that you can't eat, but you have to hold on to. Oh, crap. <laughs> and you can't drop it, for God's sake, no. Look, I mean, sensitizing ourselves to the pain that's in the world is very hard, right? And, and that's yeah. why people become harsh and cruel and mean, right? These are the only two choices that you have, given that the world is a painful place to live in, a lot, right? Often, not totally, right? Because of the people and the way they treat the helpless, right? The world is a painful place to live in, and the only choice that you have is to be sensitive and feel the pain, or to become an asshole, right? Yeah. I mean, the, well, you either then turn that. against you, you, you. Sorry, you either feel the pain of the people who are hurt, or you turn against them as if they're hurting you, right? And you then bully and dominate and become. So, you know, it, it, it's a painful choice, but it's still better than the other thing. Yeah, one thing I was really happy about with this interaction, though, is that I think this is the first time I've ever done anything like this, and it did feel good. I mean, even knowing that it was just kind of like a, you know, a, a pebble in a huge ocean, it's still it felt good tossing that pedal in there because um, I, you know, I just felt like I kind of mopped up a little bit of suffering for a few minutes in one day, and you know maybe that interaction might help that guy to slow down the next time or something. I don't know. It's just uh, it did feel good doing it, and, and I'm glad that I have changed into the kind of person who would do that because normally I just turn around and walk away feeling like 
like I had somehow been imposed upon, you know, by the whole interaction. Like, oh, why are they bothering me or something like that? So. Well, and you're breaking a pattern. Right, you're breaking a pattern, and I don't know that it's going to do that much to change the parents, because once you've started torturing and being cruel to kids, I mean, but what you've done for the kid is, here's another way of behaving, right? All, all, All that kids need to see to give them choices in the future is another way of interacting. And if they see that other way of interacting... Then it's sort of it's like a it's like the the grit in the in the oyster that produces the pearl, right? Because then the next time that their dad is cruel to them, they'll remember that nice guy uh, who acted differently and was kind, right? Uh, so so it, it then doesn't become an absolute that this is. How, I mean, this, it's amazing, and I remember this from when I was a little kid. Nice people, right? I, I I remember like the five nice people I met before I was ten, right? <laughs> like clear as day. Right, and and that had a lot to do, I think, with um, oh, and and of course the difference between myself and my brother in in some ways could well come down to the fact that uh, he was raised for the first month or two by my mom, and I was raised for the first month or two by a very kind uh, and loving uh, surrogate, uh, who actually I mean liked me so much that she named her child many years later when she had her own baby, uh, she named him. Uh, thank God it's not Steph. Uh, which is a weird. I think it's Gaelic. No, she she named him after me because we we had a real bond, right? So um, one of the ways in which my humanity was probably enhanced relative to my brothers is that you know my sort of cold and narcissistic mom and angry was the one who he Im- tried to imprint with over the first couple of months of his life. Whereas I didn't go through that because my mom was hospitalized for depression after I was born uh, and uh, didn't really spend much time around me at all for the first couple of months. And I, was, I know that it was sort of a very famously affectionate woman who took care of me, and that probably had a lot to do with turning me into the slightly gay individual that I am now. So, um, so these, I mean, these things can have an enormous impact on, on children. And, of course, it is the best that we can do, right? I mean, so I think it's definitely worth doing if you, if you get a chance. Hey, Steph, do you want to have a chat with my little friend? She's nine years old. Sure. Uh, absolutely. If she has a question or whatever, that would be, uh, that would be fine. Now, the, the question is, um, as far as danger, uh, as far as danger goes, I did not... First of all, you don't come up and say... I don't think you want to go up to somebody who's abusing his child or her child and say, you know, unless they're actually hitting, right? If they're actually hitting the child, like physically, um, just call the cops. I mean, again, it's not perfect, but it's the best we can do. But that's criminal, right? I mean, you wouldn't, I mean if, if you saw somebody hitting someone in a wheelchair, you'd call the cops, right? And if you see somebody hitting their child, you call the cops. You call the cops. And, um, but if you see somebody verbally abusing their child, uh, it's a little bit more tricky. The one thing I will say, though, is, is that if you don't feel confident approaching that person... Don't do it, right? Because you don't want to you don't want to give uh, to a kid who's being abused. You don't want to give the impression that uh, goodness gets destroyed, right? That standing even as an adult standing up to his father is going to get destroyed, right? So um, if uh, and and of course if you uh, if you want to call the cops if you can see a car, right, and you can get the license plate, then you don't even need the person to stay, right? Uh, you, you just you get the license plate. You call the cops and say, "Well, I saw the family. This is the license plate of the car they own. This is what they did uh, to their kids, and you really need to go and talk to them, right?" And um, as far as verbal abuse goes, 
the one thing I will say is that if you feel confident in the approach, it's, it seems to me, I can't guarantee it, of course, right, but it seems to me highly unlikely that somebody is then going to turn and start verbally abusing you. And the reason Hello? Hello. Hello. Hi, how's it going? Good. Good. You're nine years old? Yeah. Okay, now, are you like nine and a quarter? Are you nine and a half? Are you nine and no, three quarters? No, I just, I just turned nine. Wow, big lie, big leagues, big time. And how does it feel being nine? Do you feel taller? Mm, no. Can you see over countertops yet? I've always been able to see over countertops. Really? Even like bank countertops? Mm. Well, like, Don't go to bed as a kid, right? <laughs> okay, you're not used as a distraction during a stick-up. So, uh, <laughs> so how does it feel being on the internet? Uh, I don't know. Not really different from anything else. Not really different from anything else. And uh, do you do you like school? Yeah, kind of. Kind of. So, do you like part of school and not like part of school, or do you like the whole thing? I like um, part of school. And what do you like? Uh, what subjects do you like in school? English and social studies. And what do you not like? Math. Math. Ew. Okay, spit with me now. Patui. Math. Patui. Patui. There you go. Oh, that, actually that landed in my ear, so that's kind of gross. But that's okay. I asked you to do it, so that seems only fair. And have you always disliked math? Yeah. What about what about science? Pardon? What about science? Do you take science at all, or is that later on? Yeah, I take science. I like that a bit. A bit. You don't now. Do you do you guys have to do this thing? I think like when I was like your age, we had to do this thing where like we cut open these frogs, and it was really really horrendous. We, we cut them open. No. You don't have to do that. What yeah. about uh, do you do you like look at plants under microscopes, or what do you do in science where you, when you're in school? Mm, we see. Well, since we're kind of young, we put like sugar and water and see what happens in a couple of weeks or something. You know what? I really should know this. So you can give us a little science lesson, and you can tell us what exactly happens to sugar and water in a couple of weeks. After a few weeks, it will turn like to sugar glass. To sugar glass, really? Yeah. I wonder if that's how weeks. they make those little candy houses. Maybe. Andy. Very cool. And what else do you uh, do you learn in science? Uh, we mix colors and water. Oh yeah, so you can see the color spectrum. Mhm. Mm oh, cool. And what are you reading in uh, in English? Like all different things, like I don't know stories. Do you read like whole books, like whole novels yet, or is it mostly? We actually read one last year. What's the name? Um, uh, Little House on the Prairie. Oh, yeah. You know, that was, a t sh that was a TV show when I was, I guess, about your age. But, um, uh, and do, do you read any poetry, or is it mostly just stories? We read some poetry, but it's for work. And are you taking notes right now so that you will have uh, the ability, when you go back to school in September to write the essay that every child on the planet has to, re has to write when they go back to school every September, which is what I did with my summer vacation. No. You don't have to do that essay? I don't think so. 
Really? Okay, I don't, I don't want to worry you because I'm not saying that I know <laughs> you have to do it. But I know that when I was a kid, every, every single September, we'd have to come back and we'd have to say what I did with my summer vacation. And I didn't usually do a whole lot with my summer vacation, so I have to make stuff up, you know, like I became a mermaid, uh, I rode a unicorn, I learned how to fly, uh, I can now breathe fire, but I won't. Uh, you know, it's just that kind of stuff, and I was just curious if anybody would ever notice, and uh, they didn't actually. So I don't know if they read them. But do you have to write stories, or do you have to write essays in English? Um, yeah, we can write stories and stuff. And what do you like to write about? Um, dogs. Dogs? And do you have a dog? Yeah, I have a dog. How long have you had a dog for? I've had it since I was born. Since you were Even born? Longer. Wow, that's a since long time. Since I was time. born. Since, since I was you born. were born. Okay, so it's like a dog that your family had? Yeah. And what other pets do you have? I have a horse and cat. You have a horse and a cat. And I'm yes, guessing that you ride the horse. Cat. You don't use it for, like, plowing. No. And do you, uh, do you ride, uh, do you jump, do you dressage, uh, do you just ride for riding's sake? My niece is, uh, likes to ride horses as well. No, we just, like, ride and um, I'm just kind of beginner. I don't, I used to be on the lunch line and I just started off the lunch line this year, so we don't really do anything. And what do you want to be or do when you get bigger? I want to be a singer. You want to be a singer? Wow, very cool. You know, there's a, you might want to look at this on YouTube, or maybe you've seen it. There was a girl who was on the British show. Uh, it was a British talent show. It wasn't... I don't think it was the British American Idol or whatever. There was a girl on it. You should look this up on YouTube. She was like six years old. And she, uh, she sang very nicely. So have you, uh, have you, uh, have you tried competitions or, uh, or that sort of stuff? I went into the talent show. Oh, cool. How did you do? We did pretty well. And what did you sing? Rush. You sang Rush? The band yeah. Rush? Yeah. Um, no, it was Allie and AJ. Allie and AJ. Oh, I'm afraid I don't think they go to my demographic. Um, do you remember the song now? Um, I don't really remember exactly. Well, I'll tell you, if you like, and I'm not asking your name or anything, not because I'm rude, but just because I don't want to ask someone's name over the Internet. But uh, if you'd like, and I don't want to put you on the spot, I don't want to pressure you, but this is a show called Freedom Aid Radio, and it's actually about philosophy. But occasionally, I throw in what could be loosely described as singing. And if you would like to sing to an audience of about 30,000 people, you're more than welcome to belt out a few lines or the whole song of what you like to sing. Mm, no. I'm not a big fan of singing in front of people that I don't really know. Right, right. Do you know any Queen? Pardon? Do you know any, uh, any songs by the, uh, the band Queen? Because I could get you started. I kind of know we are the champions, but I'm not a very big fan of them. <gasps> well, that's okay. You're still young. You have much to learn. <laughs> so well, that's great. Uh, and do you like to sing like country music, or do you like to sing um, 
a rock or do you like to sing opera or what is it that you like to sing? Pop music. And who's your favorite singer? Other than I mean, you haven't heard me, but but who else is your favorite singer? Um, Hilary Duff. Hilary Duff. I've actually seen a movie with Hilary Duff in it, so I think you and I are on the same page there. She's actually a very good performer. I think too skinny though. I liked her when she wasn't so skinny, uh, a little bit more. Now she looks kind of like a skeleton with nice hair. Now, is there uh, anything else that you'd like to say to uh, to me or any questions that you might ask? Uh, I know that you were just sort of like a microphone was put in front of your face, but is there uh, anything else that you'd like to uh, to ask or to talk about? Not really. Well, I do appreciate you, uh, you stopping by, and um, there are a couple of podcasts on this show for kids, and I'm sure that uh, your friend or relative who put you on will point you to them. But listen, I, I hope that you uh, can learn to like math a little bit more, because there's, there's a lot more of it to come. You don't get to escape math for quite some time. I wasn't a big fan of math either, uh, and I liked I'm English and social studies. Like, I'm sorry? I'm good, <coughs> I'm good at math, but it's, like, I don't really like it. Well, that's great. I, I wasn't good at math, and that's why I didn't like it. So I didn't know that you could be good at math and not like it, because I generally liked the things <laughs> that I was good at. So, But, uh, yeah, my wife is, uh, is very good at math, but she liked it as well which is why she does the finances, and I talk with people on the Internet. Um, but best of luck. Uh, I hope that you, uh, if you ever do want to come back and sing a song, I'd be more than happy. Uh, you never know who's listening to this show and might uh, offer you a massive recording contract. Uh, I'm still waiting for mine, but um, uh, I'm sure that you, you would uh, be ahead of me in that lineup. So do come back and have a chat with us again, uh, if you like. And if you'd like to uh, bring your singing microphone, we'd be more than happy to hear. Um, not today. Not today. No, no problem. Listen, this is totally on the spot, right? So <laughs> I totally understand it. And if you did know some Queen, I'd get you started. But I'd probably, we, 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 you and I, we may sing in different keys. So that's just an important thing to understand. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks very much. I really, uh, I really enjoyed chatting with you. And, uh, and uh, best of luck with your singing. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, you, uh, if we have any other listeners uh, at the moment who have questions or comments or issues um, mm-hmm. that are uh, G-rated, uh, that, would be, uh, that would be good. No, Christina, that's not G-rated. <laughs> no, I don't. Okay, any. thanks very much. I really do appreciate it. And uh, um, if, we, uh, if we have the next comment or question from listeners, that would be excellent. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's cool. Now I feel like we can't talk about big people issues. Okay, Harry Potter. Straight or not? Okay, because, you know, she, he, he is in an all-boys school. Actually, no, it's not all-boys, but it's a boarding school. Hey, Steph? Hello. Hi, can you hear me? I sure can. This is Graham. I'm a big, big fan. Hi, how's it going? Good. Yeah, she was just listening, so I asked her if she wanted to jump in and talk a bit. No, that was great. Uh, just uh, have her vocally warm up next time. She, and I'll uh, tell you what, I'll, I'll promise to learn uh, Hillary Duff's entire over. Okay, I'll follow that. Although she, she mostly nine? sings in, Hillary Duff mostly sings in Latin, so it's really tough. 
she just turned nine. That's very cute. Well, tell her, do to tell her uh, thanks for uh, talking to us. And then she can listen to this when she's older and say, oh, my heavens, I had no idea how much I was going to destroy my future career opportunities by appearing on this show. I can't believe you didn't tell me what danger I was putting myself in. Uh, did you, uh, Graham, did you have any questions or comments that you'd like to uh, bring to bear? Um, not anything that I can think of at the moment, but just like to say, great job. I like it all. Well, thanks so much. I do appreciate that. Uh, feel free to jump back in if you do have any other uh, questions or comments. And right, cool. uh, uh, so, do we have any other questions or comments from other other people, other listeners? <laughs> and the rain came down. Is, is that her song? When the rain comes down. Do, do apologize to your friend for me. <laughs> Uh, somebody has just confirmed that it is, but because I like that person, I'm not going to say who it is. That, uh, that the gentleman who knows Hillary Duff. Greg. <laughs> just kidding. It's in fact bad. I don't know. Are we still recording? All right. Uh, sorry, if uh, somebody could just if, uh, just hit the record button. I'm just something flickered up on my screen. I'm not sure if I'm recording or not. Recording conversation. Excellent. All right. So uh, if anybody has any questions, uh, we don't have to have a terrifically long show today. If there's not a lot of questions around, that's no problemo. Yeah, Greg, are you uh, are you on the line? Yes. Hey, uh, hey, Greg, how's it going? <laughs> Not too bad. Is that too loud? Oh, my God, you sound like a decade older. Are you okay? <laughs> it's probably this Internet connection. Happy belated birthday, my brother. How are you feeling? Hey, thanks a lot. I feel relaxed. I feel pretty good. That's, uh, that's great. And where are you right now? Incognito. Oh, no, incognito. Uh, I love that place. <laughs> no passports, no taxes. No, I'm I'm uh, holed up temporarily right now uh, back in Chicago, um, and we'll be leaving here around the first of September. Wow. And what are you doing in uh, in Chicago? Uh, just cleaning up some uh, loose ends and. Uh, Hooking up with the the Chicago folks on the 25th, since since you uh, welched out on us. Absolutely, absolutely. I was just, um, I'm sorry about that, but <laughs> it was too hard to hey, pull no it all together. Well, actually, I just shouldn't say that there wasn't enough uh, enough response. So, well, that's very nice. Yeah. Very nice. And what uh, have you have you figured out what you're up to next? Um. Since you're now relaxed, I thought I'd ask the question that's going to make you the most tense immediately. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty uh, pretty tense question. Um, no, actually, um, uh, I've I've got I've got a few ideas I'm batting around, but um, um, I, I'm not too sure which one I'm going to go with. Um, I, I was, <laughs> as has been the um, 
the pattern with this whole process. Uh, I was much more sure six months ago than I am now. Um, but uh, I have uh, three different voices in my head, and I don't know which one's the real one. But that's right. huge progress, isn't it, right? Because it's down from the cost of thousands. <laughs> so that's true. That, that's excellent. That's I mean, true. that really is narrowing it down quite a bit. If I could get down to three, oh, my heavens. Anyway. Well, what, one, thing I, one, one thing I learned about that on my, uh, one of my last days in London was that uh, no matter how loud the music gets, it's never loud enough to drown those voices out. <laughs> that's right. I saw a T-shirt uh, the other day. Some guy said... Um, Yes, I do hear voices in my head, but some of them have some pretty damn good ideas. <laughs> uh, another one said, uh, I don't suffer from insanity. I enjoy every minute of it. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to get to that point. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, well that's, that's the surprising thing about the philosophical journey is originally, um, in terms of my, sort of my business career, philosophy really helped me in the beginning because it made me more reasonable, uh, a better manager, and, and more assertive, and so on. But the problem is that when you keep going on into wisdom, uh, that bell curve seems to take a bit of a dip, right? <laughs> and you just can't, like you can't, you don't want to spend your life managing idiots after a while and, and dealing with idiots. So, um, so that's quite a different situation. Yeah, the, the, um, the, the, the threshold for... Uh, um, Lunacy goes way down. Yeah, for sure. I mean, real, real lunacy. Not, not, not the kind of lunacy that I have. The other people's lunacy. Let me put it that way. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I had my original plan, which was to um, go back to school and study something different, and do that for a while, and then I had a backup plan, which was just go somewhere else and get a job. Then I had my third plan, which was uh, and actually is a relatively <laughs> new plan, but uh, it, all of them are like um, just other people's ideas that I've kind of internalized for myself. Right, right, right. Right. And, and uh, so, um, which doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad ideas for, for myself, just that uh, I'm not sure. Right. Right, right. And figuring out um, how to get sure is kind of where I'm stuck right now. Right, right. Not, not so much figuring out which one's the right idea, but figuring out how to tell. Right, 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 right. So, so in the meantime, I'm just sort of, I don't know, just kind of uh, just trying different things out, I guess. Right, right. Well, eventually your unconscious will panic and give you a, a solution. <laughs> Get a job, you idiot! <laughs> Must eat! <laughs> Must eat! <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, I, I make a joke, but there is some, right? I mean, growth, growth occurs from extremity, right? I mean, the, the personality is an extraordinarily inert thing. Uh, it makes husbands look relatively active. And um, 
so uh, we don't change until, right? So it's, it's good to float in the space of not knowing what to do, right? Because then um, your body will eventually panic and, <laughs> and give you a direction that will actually work, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it sounds right, weird, but I think that's, I've noticed that a couple, a number of times with people, right? Because most people, what they do, it's like sort of, it's like people who date, right? So uh, they they feel anxiety about not dating someone, right? So then they'll just start dating someone saying, well, I'll do this until the right person comes along, which effectively precludes the right person from coming along, right? So, right, it's uh, an avoidance mechanism. Yes, staying in that state of not knowing is the fundamental path to growth, right? Because, I mean... That's where that's what I mean. That's what bothers me about the determinists or the blind free willers, is like they, or the people who are religious. I mean, the people who say well, the government should solve this or that. Is they're not willing to sit in the space of I don't know, right? Because as, as long as I was an objectivist and believed in the minarchist, the minarchist potential of voluntary taxation government, I didn't come up with the DRO thing, right? But it's only when you <coughs> sit there and don't know for a while that you start becoming creative. So the place where you're sitting in of not knowing what you're going to do, it creates anxiety, and most people try and deal with that anxiety by acting, right? Or just saying, okay, well, I've got to pick something. I'm going to pick ABC. Or I'll try this. And that effectively cuts the whole process off before they get to, to where they need to get to. So I think it's very, it's very good what you're doing now. Well, <laughs> sometimes it doesn't seem so, but... Uh, well, no, of course. That, that's why people don't do it, right? Right. Because right, it's really exactly. uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable, and then you feel like there's a, stretch, a stretching rubber band, you know, and it's going to snap, and then you're going to, like, sail off into space or homelessness or something. So it's, uh, it's tough, but it's worthwhile. Uh, it's following the arrow all the way down, right? Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. So that's, that's kind of what uh, where I'm at right now, so I'm just going to kind of take it easy and uh, do a little bit of... Uh, Mm, just uh, reading and thinking and that sort of thing. <laughs> I hope something comes up soon because I'd hate to have to burn through everything before it... Uh, before... Uh, before my head's finally screwed on straight. I don't know. Well, I mean, when I took that, <clears throat> I guess almost, almost two years off to write, I, mean, I burned through a lot of money uh, doing that, mostly because not even so much the writing or anything, it's just the crack. But um, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, I burned through a lot, but I mean, I got an enormous amount of benefit out of it. Unfortunately, I, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, probably more fortunately, I didn't sell any books as a writer, uh, or at least not that many, not, certainly not enough to live. I got revolutions published and so on, but and I wrote almost in The God of Atheists. But... Um, uh, yeah, but of course, uh, through that <coughs> through that process, I met Christina, and because I just had a book published, and she said, uh, you know, hi, or whatever, what's new? And I said, oh, I just got a book published. And she's like, you're kidding. I thought you were the janitor. Because um, <laughs> she was actually just, she was just wanted to know where the washrooms were. Um, well, well, as long as you don't end that sentence with baby, right? That's right. I just got a book published, baby, <laughs> hardcover. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, that's right. Because there's like three phallic jokes writers can make, right? Something about pencils, anyway. Um, not stubbies, neither. But I um, know. Oh, but so I was sort of I was in motion and I was doing something. And Christina said, "Wow, an unemployed writer." I'm tingling. Um, <laughs> you know, she's just used to working with people like that. Um, 
but uh, I mean that that's sort of where it led, right? I mean, I would never have have had that topic of conversation, right? If I'd have said I I work in software, well, right. you know what happened right. to women then, right? Hello. Hello. You still on? Yeah, I'm sorry. It's just oh, a no bad problem. echo. That's all. Yeah. So I mean, I I and I um, uh, and of course I, I was very interested in dating because. I was burning through so much money, and Christina looked pretty loaded, so um, that, was, that was pretty key for me, right? Although, you know, I'll tell you, uh, it's not good uh, to say, can I move in, in the first 20 minutes. <laughs> Although, you, you, can, you can say, are you going to finish that sandwich, because I haven't eaten in three days. Um, because you have a functional you shower? <laughs> you have a functional shower. <laughs> <laughs> I like the word functional in that. That makes that joke so much funnier. <laughs> I have a shower, but I broke it. <laughs> I have a functional shower. That's great. That's great. Don't be funnier than me. It's my show. Sorry? Best pickup oh, yeah. ever, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say crank and hookers, uh, just in case somebody was wondering, but I don't want to bring back that debate even remotely. Now, did you you had something to that you wanted to say about determinants because um, you posted some excellent sort of thinking points, and I've been sort of rubbing the three remaining brain cells uh, together to see what I could come up with. But you had some uh, stuff to talk about with that. Uh, thinking points. Remind me, is this a post of mine? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. Which one? You are so close to enlightenment, Greg. It's chilling. I give you another 12 minutes and you're going to burst into a nirvanic flame. <laughs> no, it's just that uh, you were talking about, um, uh, you know, that, that there's, uh, we still need to sort of figure out the basic motivations of people who are determinists uh, before we can sort of go a whole lot further. I think that was you, wasn't that you? Um, you white men are all the same to me. I don't know. <laughs> it, might have, it might have been Rod, too. Uh. Um, but, but, but uh, yeah, we could chat about that. And I also want to talk about your uh, your your uh, your, your um, free will theory as well. Oh, sorry, go on. Oh, the book is uh, <laughs> the book is beyond talking. It has to be absorbed. Right, right. You have to work it into your skin like a fine baby powder. <laughs> right. No, um I, I think I think the argument you were making in that recent podcast on... It's the Diamond Plus uh, one. Yeah. All right, let's keep people and, going. Um, and, and maybe you'll want to um, paraphrase it because you're the guy that came up with it, but uh, you, you had posited that free will was a kind of defense reaction to... Well, to the exploitation that's inherent in mysticism. Right, and and what? Um, I'm sorry, just want to interrupt you for a second. Somebody's just joined. Uh, we have uh, some music in the background, and we also have some echoes. So, whoever's joined, if you could just turn your mic off. Thanks. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, oh wait, good. it's back. Yeah, it's gone. It's back. It's gone. All right. Sorry. Go in. Right, and uh, what some of us were kind of chatting about was that, uh, I mean, this was 
maybe a couple of months ago, in fact, um, that uh, determinism actually seems more like a, a defense mechanism than free will does. Because in sort of the same way that uh, uh, you, you talk about the psychological angle of you know, defending your parents and that sort of thing for their for their actions, so you can believe that they're good, right? If uh, if you're a determinist, you can, I mean that adds another that that adds another uh, arrow to that quiver of defenses for your for your parents, right? You know they. Uh, there's no um, there's no blaming them because it was all determined, right? Well, I, I, I agree with that, and I've, I've gone down that road a little ways. The reason I turned back, which I mean, doesn't mean it's wrong, it's just that's the signpost that turned me back, was I, I generally only classify defenses as those things which react to stimuli, right? So, so we've had a number of people who will sort of come by the boards and say, you know, geez, I listened to a couple of these Steph's podcasts about the family, and man, Steph hates the family, and he's trying to set up a cult, and, and whatever, right? Like, that to me is defensive behavior, and the stimuli is some, what I would call, morally objective views on the family that stings someone to their core to the point where they'll come in and start, you know, flaming and, and trawling and whatever, right? So that's a defense. But determinists don't seem to be reacting to something, right? They, they seem to be initiating something. And so, to me, it's not quite in the same category as, as a mere defensiveness, right? So, so Christianity, in a sense, like when a Christian comes on, or I get these things more on YouTube than anywhere else, where Christians come on and say, you know, you've misinterpreted uh, when Christ said he, he brought a sword, he just meant he had a penis, or whatever they say, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> they... Uh, like, they are, um, yeah. that's sort of a reaction. But when somebody posts a I love God video, that's not quite the same as a defense, right? I mean, yes, it's true that they're defending their families for inflicting these crazy beliefs on them. But determinism doesn't quite seem to be a defense in that way. It seems to be more of an initiation. Well, in the sense that uh, you're saying, in, do you mean by that that uh, they're hmm? Well, and and the analogy, uh, sorry, just to make it a little bit more clear, the analogy that I've sort of been working with is that determinism is just a scientific form of religion or a pseudo scientific form of religion, uh, insofar as. Religion will posit a particular belief, right? And then you say, oh, okay, well, if this belief is true, then these are the logical consequences that follow, right? And then all of the logical consequences of that belief that follow are rejected, right? So, for instance, right, I mean, the, the standard argument which can be made, well, one of the many standard arguments that can be made against the theistic morality is to say, well, God knows everything, right? Yes. Well, then God knows what we are going to do in the future. Yes. But, right. But if God knows what we're going to do in the future, how can we be punished for doing it? Because it's foreordained, right? And th that's just determinism, right? right? I mean, 
and furthermore, how could he have any free will to change it himself? Yeah, but I mean, if, even if we take that aspect out, because, I mean, that is the closest analogy to a determinist argument, right? Because determinists say that what we're going to do is foreordained, right? And then the logical consequence of that is that nobody has any moral responsibility, right? So when you say God knows what you're going to do in the future, the logical consequence of that is, well, then we don't have any moral responsibility. And there's no point right, even God debating anything, all right? Responsibility. God becomes, a, God becomes a sinkhole for all that responsibility. Well, but what happens is that when you say to a Christian or any religious person, if God knows what we're going to do in the future, then we don't have any responsibility, then you get these incredibly convoluted and, frankly, really annoying explanations. You know, God is outside of time. Or, you know, well, God knows, <laughs> but we don't know, and therefore we must be able to choose. And, right? So there's these incredible convolutions that are injected into this omniscience, right? And in the, in the religious world, the omniscience is God. And in the deterministic world, the sort of, quote, omniscience is the absence of free will and the behavior of atoms and energy, right? That is all foreordained, so to speak. So right. what happens is people put this omnipotence or this inevitability. Omnipotence is the same as inevitability, right? If you add consciousness to inevitability, you get omniscience, right? So the, the, the Christian... Right, because if... Go ahead. Because if you can consciously know everything that's going to happen, I mean, the only way you could consciously know what's going to happen in the future, everything that's going to happen in the future, is for inevitability to be true. Sure, absolutely, right? So, so then the, the, Christian the Christian says everything is inevitable and God knows what's going to happen and we have no choice, right? That's the argument they're making. But then they say... But we do have choice, because we don't know what's happening, not God and this and that. And there's a complete disconnect, right? And so there is this sense of inevitability around the Christian ethos, right, that everything is written and, and God knows what's happening in the future. But you're still completely responsible for what you do, even though what you're going to do is inevitable, right? And it's, it's, of course, that really annoying convolution that is so annoying. To me, right? I mean, and I'm sure to others as well, right? But the determinists do exactly that. They, they mirror the Christian argument precisely that everything is predetermined but we still have choice but it's not really choice but it's it's like somebody's whispering the play into our ear as we're you know like it's all just nonsense right it's like uh, right. there could be a million determinists out that. there who've never posted on the Freedom Aid radio boards because they really believe in determinism right? but the moment somebody posts and tries to change your mind and so on right and of course this is the round and round and round that you go right uh, with, with theists or with determinists, right? So a determinist says everything is foreordained and we don't have any choice. It's like, okay, then I'm not going to debate with you. There's no such thing as morality. You can't love your wife. You can't, this is the, uh, you can't punish criminals or whatever. And even if you do or you don't, you can't change anything, right? You're, you're basically just yelling at a rock that's bouncing down a hill. Go left, go right. It doesn't make any sense, right? Just going to do but how could that? Do. How can that not be? How can that not be a psychological defense? I guess? Well, I don't know that it's a psychological defense mechanism. I think it's a psychological attack mechanism. And the two are at least distinct in my mind, right? A defense mechanism lies dormant until somebody triggers it, right? But an attack mechanism is something quite different. All right. So, so, oh, so sorry. Somebody has just joined who's playing music. Okay, does anybody who know that is? I'll be more than happy to. Oh, yeah. See, here we don't have the capacity to join or not. 
Okay, thanks. Sorry, if you could just not play music, this is a philosophical conversation, uh, or at least play better music. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah a, a defense mechanism lies dormant until it's triggered, right? So, I mean, a guy who's stepping into a restaurant or a bar with some hot chick on his arm thinks he's all that, right? But, you know, then the moment she opens her mouth and starts talking about the joys of tarot card reading, Scientology, and astral travel, right, that anybody <laughs> with any brains is going to say, okay, so you've just got, like, this retarded Cupid doll on your arm. That's pretty sad, right? So he's going to yeah. feel all, all up in, in, in his coolness until somebody points out that it's not really that cool to date um, uh, retarded people who know how to put on makeup. And then he... So he's going to feel good until he's criticized, then he's going to react, right? So um, bringing the girl in is his one-upmanship. That's more of an attack, right? To put other people down to feel, right? That's, that's his initiation. And then if you criticize his, uh, his brain-dead blondie, then he's going to react to you in a hostile manner, right? So those, those, those two are sort of distinct phenomenon. And to me, a, a defense mechanism requires a trigger, but something which is an attack, which, which, where somebody comes in and um, tries to put other people down. And to me, this is what determinists are doing. Uh, they're, just trying, they're coming in and they're trying to pretend to be smart, right? It's, this is why, like Christianity or religious people, they just pretend to be deep. Right, by creating contradictions. You know, like, a really smart mathematician doesn't say two plus two is both four and a fish simultaneously, right? And you're supposed to unravel that because he's just so intelligent, right? Um, you know, like, somebody doesn't put on, like, have you listen to three minutes of silence and say, that's a song that's all about the space between the notes, you know, something like that, right? I mean, that's just a retarded way of trying to appear intelligent, right? To, to, Not a to big really fan be intelligent. Of John Cage, Sorry? <laughs> I was just making another joke. Not a big fan of John Cage, are we? Right, right. Or is it uh, what some comedian said, you know, had a Philip Glass record. Uh, it turned out there was a scratch in the record and it got stuck, but I couldn't tell for three days. Um, <laughs> so there's a really obscure joke for you there. But, um, um, but this, uh, so, so when they come in and they say, well, everything is predetermined, well, of course they're solving a problem, right? They're solving the problem of, of free will by saying everything is predetermined, right? So it's like, okay, great. So, so that's your solution. But they're coming in, and then, and then you say, okay, well, these are the consequences, and then say, no, everything is predetermined, but we still have choice, and it's still you can debate and bring evidence and try and change people's minds even though they can't. Like, it's just a paradox, right? It's just a paradox, and it's, it's a paradox that they feel that they have resolved in some weird manner, but it's still a paradox, and it's considered so, so to be a mark of great, great intelligence to have penetrated that. And what they do is they try and explain it to you. Sorry, let me just finish this and I'll give you all the time in the world. They try and explain sure. this to you, right? So you say, well, obviously there's no moral, there's no morality if everything's predetermined, right? And then they'll try and explain it to you and say, yes, there is morality because of X, Y, and Z. Oh, okay, so we have a choice. No, we don't have a choice. It's like, but you're ascribing all the attributes of choice, right? So this guy on the board uh, posted this, this um, uh, critique of, of free will and said, here's the argument for determinism, and use things like values and philosophy and morality and choice and this and that, right? It's like, well, then stop using the words, right? It's like speaking <laughs> to me in Mandarin, saying there's no such thing as Mandarin. I mean, I can't take it seriously. So what they do is they just present a paradox. Well, uh, I've tidied up the, the, the unknown cause of free will and the fact that it is freaky that atoms can choose. 
But so what? I mean, so human beings have free will and no other creature does. But that doesn't mean anything. I mean, a fish can't fly. It's not just a worse flyer than a bird. It, it can't fly at all, right? I mean, it's the opposite of flying underwater, right? I guess it's flying underwater, whatever, right? But There, there so, is so such a thing as a mammal with a duck bill, right? Right, right. But I mean, they come in and they just present this paradox, right? The same way that Christians come in and present a paradox, right? And, and then they, they, they say this paradox is resolved, I have resolved this paradox, and you ask for their explanation, and you just go round and round in circles. And it's just the appearance of intelligence, and this is deeply insecure people who are intellectually, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, who are intellectually uh, bullying and sadistic, right? So they want to come in and they say, I have solved the problem of the ages. You know, and they don't come in with humility and say, well, you know, I mean, geez, when I put forward universal moral propositions, I know that I'm attacking the problem of the ages. And with all due humility, I come in and say, well, here's my syllogisms. Here's what can be attacked. Here's what can be undermined. Here's the choices. Uh, here's the consequences. Here's the reasoning, right? With all due humility, because so I know that I'm putting forward the secular proof of morality, which is, you know, the holy grail of philosophy. So, I mean, with all due humility, right? I don't just come in and say, oh, morality is you know, solved this way, right? As if, you know, this hasn't been the big goal of thinkers for, you know, thousands of years, right? To have ethics without a deity. But these people come in and say, oh, you know, everything's determined, right? As if this hasn't been a massive debate for thousands of years, right? And then you say, okay, well, you must have come up with something really amazing to be able to, to really contribute something to this, this problem. But they haven't, right? All they do is they say, everything is determined, but, we ha- but, but, but free will, you know, all the consequences of free will are still present, but everything is determined. And that, of course, is just a stupid paradox. And that's why I have little patience with the determinants anymore, because I just find them to be, uh, they're exactly the same as theists in my mind. They just put forward a whole bunch of bullshit and uh, uh, don't recognize the paradoxes uh, and never admit faults, never admit any problems with theory, right? Never say, you know, I do wrestle with that. I do wrestle with this problem of ethics in a deterministic universe. They just, oh no, there's ethics in a deterministic universe. It's like, Jesus, you know, like have some humility and recognize that these are, this is a difficult thing to swallow that you're putting forward, right? But they don't ever do that. They just come in and waltz in and tossing off all of these absolute statements and then changing their story. But that's exactly what religious people do. And of course, it's exactly what statists do as well. All right, well, you just haven't... Yeah, <laughs> you just haven't figured out. You just haven't uh, taken hold of the skeleton key of uh, compatibilism yet. Right, right. No, I have <laughs> had the compatibilist debate with Francois. Uh, I guess about a year or a little bit more back. But unfortunately, I just haven't found the right psychological or pharmaceutical club to beat, beat my brain into those kinds of fragments that I can accept <laughs> that kind of theory. You know, that's just. I mean, you just. That's not beating your head against the wall. That's just putting a live grenade in your mouth and hoping enlightenment's going to hit. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, in a, in a nutshell, then, uh, uh, in in your view, uh, determinism, um, in a sense, it's still a defense mechanism, but it's a it's an initiation because it's like a, um, an intellectual flashbang thrown into a room that uh, disables anyone who might want to argue with them. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right, and perhaps to, 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 and first of all, I know we haven't spoken in a while, but it's so, it's so cute to hear you would use the phrase in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, Greg, <laughs> Greg, Greg. <laughs> the optimism is staggering. It is just staggering. I think it's wonderful. Uh, Christina also well, says the same thing. But go on. Well, I could be saying, but. 
Oh, I'm waiting for that. I'm waiting for that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, but there's a defense mechanism. Uh, sorry, and I, I, should, I didn't put that. I will try and do this relatively succinctly, but there's a defense mechanism against a long-running and perpetual insecurity within our own personality, right? So if I date some woman just because she's, you know, hot or whatever, and not that she'd date me, but I mean, let's say in some parallel universe, um, if I dated, she'd marry me, but if I dated some woman who was hot just because I wanted to impress the guys, right, then that would be my defense against a permanent feeling of insecurity, right? So that's a perpetual state of insecurity that would cause me to initiate that kind of one-upmanship on other people. But, so that's like a known constant, right? The same reason that when I walk, I know that the known constant is gravity, so I try not to fly, right? But there are other things which are provoked by particular and usually surprising things, right? So when people start listening to my podcast and they think, oh, it's about philosophy, or it's about this, and they get DROs, they get families, they get personal stuff, they get you have to act, and they get really upset because that pushes them closer to that insecurity, right? So in a sense, the initiation of stuff is the defense against the perpetual insecurity, whereas the defenses that are reactions against very specific things that bring you closer to that, if that makes any sense. So then... Uh, Given, given that explanation of determinism, how is that any different than what you were describing of free will in that podcast? Oh, um, well, as, no, as I, see, a, I, see as what you're I see what you're saying. Well, if somebody is insecure about his own intelligence, right, and... and Look, there's no, I mean, we're all insecure about our own intelligence. If you've got, I mean, if you're intelligent, you're insecure about your own intelligence, and that's good, right? That's good, right? I'm insecure about my ability to survive on a diet of chocolate, right? <laughs> Although that would be nice, right? So th that's okay. I mean, insecurity and this not knowing and knowing that you, how little you know relative to the total sum of human knowledge and blah, 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 relative to how much people will know in the future, that insecurity is very healthy. It's rational, I think. And, um, like, I'm insecure about crossing the road, and that's why I use the lights, right? Um, <laughs> that, that, that's helpful, right? That's healthy, right? So, but when, uh, when people come in with something like determinism or with something like mysticism, where they want to exploit other people's insecurities, right? So when somebody comes in and says, well, everything is determined, but there's still free will. Like, in, a person who has a reasonable amount of confidence will say... Well, I don't think that's right, right? <laughs> I don't think you've really got that nailed just yet, right? Whereas you, you, uh, you, you oh, cut like out for that? a second there. Sorry, yeah. a, um, a person who is, um, who, if somebody comes in and starts saying that, um, uh, that everything is determined but we still have choice in morality, right? Then somebody who's intellectually confident, or at least not too insecure, will say, oh, I don't think you got that nailed, right? Because that doesn't follow, right. right? Whereas somebody who's insecure will go, well, I guess it, that doesn't really feel right, but this guy seems really confident. And, you know, he seems to have all the answers and, you know, he's not expressing any doubt, so maybe he's right, you know? <laughs> like, so those kinds of people, like when you come in and you start talking about stuff like that, then uh, you basically weed out the secure people, right? The, the people who've got confidence in, in their ability to think. And you end up uh, having to hang around the insecure people who say, gee, you know, you're just so smart. You know, <laughs> I don't understand it, but it seems cool to me. You know, like you obviously know what you're doing, right? And so um, the, um, uh, 
the the attack that comes through mysticism and through statism and through determinism and so on uh, is a desire to uh, make yourself feel smarter or more competent or better um, rather than because you feel insecure about your, your yourself, right? Um, so that to me seems more of an offensive kind of thing, like the guy who sticks a knife in your ribs saying, give me your wallet, is not confident about his ability to earn a paycheck, right? Because it would be a heck of a lot of an easier way to get money, right, to do it that way. So that's like a lifestyle that ends up, you end up attacking other people because of your own insecurities, whereas uh, the, the defenses against that, uh, uh, as I sort of, and I won't go into the whole theory in the podcast because it's quite involved, but uh, um, the fact that uh, people who, uh, that mystics prey on people by promising rewards means that we have to lengthen our capacity to process promise and effect, cause and effect. And of course, uh, my theory of free will is, is largely centered around free will being our ability to balance long-term cause and effect with short-term gratification and make those choices, right? So, so I think that there is a, a, you know, you have an attack and you have a defense, right? So if there's a bad guy in your neighborhood, you'll install an alarm system in your house, right? Uh, the bad guy in your neighborhood, is, and you assume it's, a, or maybe it's just a bad neighborhood, right? So that's the attack, and the defense is the response that you put in, right? So I would say, at least the theory that I'm working with is that the predation that comes out of mysticism uh, provokes a need to validate mysticism's claims of rewards by lengthening our ability to process cause and effect, which resulted in our ability to make choices. It does more than lengthen it, though. I mean, it actually distorts it to the degree that it turns, I mean, our natural capacity to balance long-term and short-term benefits, it, it corrupts that into a self-destructive force. Well, it's certainly dangerous, but I, I mean, the theory that I have is that what happened was people figured out that they could lie to people about cause and effect. Give me your money and I'll get you good crops, even though somebody has no ability to get you good crops, like a priest or whatever. <laughs> Right, so some, somebody figured, like as soon as somebody figured out, and of course lying is pretty constant in nature, as soon as somebody figured out that they could get resources in the present by promising benefits in the future, I think that was the first thing that happened, because that evolutionarily would be the case, right? That that would get people to give them resources, right? That would get priests and kings, or priests in particular, to give them resources, right? So as soon as, and of course we project our personalities into the world, which makes it seem alive in a primitive state and so on. So the first thing that happens is somebody starts preying on someone by promising them stuff in the future in return for stuff in the present, which, you know, uh, and, and of course it's not just a, it's not just a carrot, it's a, it's a stick, right? So they say, you give me money now, or, you know, you give me your, your cow now, and you'll get 10 cows in five years, and if you don't give it to them, then all, they'll all die, you know, in a year or whatever, right? So you just threaten people with those consequences, but then the defense of that is to start processing longer-term cause and effect to validate these claims. And uh, I think, so I think that the initiation of it was the predation on people through the promise of rewards, and then in order to validate those rewards, um, you had to lengthen, like I think it almost created free will in a sense, that, that predation if that makes sense. Uh, well, what you're saying then is that free will is a kind of defense mechanism itself. Sure, yeah, it is a defense mechanism in the same way that if a new predator comes along that can reach higher in the trees, the monkeys sleep higher in the trees, right? I mean, they, they just respond to that, right? And it doesn't, there's nothing artificial about it. It's just that, that that's one possibility about the genesis of free will. Uh, because we know that... Um, uh, that uh, that kind of predation through falsehood is pretty common in nature, and that would be the first benefit, right? 
the first benefit is is preying upon others. Uh, the second benefit is defending against that praying, right? That that's sort of the reaction, right? Right, but isn't that real? Aren't you just really articulating a form of biological determinism there? I mean, no, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, it's not because I mean, if the determinism provokes the free will, um, but because free will, like, what benefit would it give you in a, in a stone age society, right? I mean, <laughs> you had no freedom anyway, right? So, so the question is, how on earth did it come about, right? Chimpanzees certainly don't seem to have it. Um, any more than they have, you know, sophisticated language and conceptual abilities beyond the rudimentary and, and sort of, and, and uh, I guess, preceptual. But well, um, what exactly is it in in concrete terms um, uh, that that we can actually point to an, uh, a chimpanzee chimpanzee and say that doesn't have it, and then point to a child and say that does have it? Well, verbal language. Okay, so the capacity for abstract rationality. Okay, so so in that in in that capability is um, also the capability for free will. Well, sure, because you can't uh, you can't have free will unless you can predict the consequences of your actions in, in, in beyond the immediate, right? Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Sure. That actually sounds rather Randian. Yeah, I mean, she says that the, the choice the, is uh, is to think or not to think. Right. And uh, right, but and, I remember yeah, I mean, a long. I think that there's some truth in that. I remember a long explanation in Peacock's book about uh, the capacity for uh, evaluating long-term benefit and consequence. Not present in in most lower mammals. Yeah, I mean the 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 key. I mean the obvious example is smoking, right? I mean if you like to smoke and you have no idea that it's bad for you, you're never going to quit, right? Any the more question we, though yeah. is, is that capacity to evaluate those long-term uh, uh, costs and benefits? Is that uh, the the uh, is that a predicate for free will, or is it uh, as a result of um, free will? In, well, no, in I, the I would say that mind. is free will. I would say that is free will. And of course, we we have the choice. Right? If you if you if you if you're feeling tipsy and you pick up your car keys, you can either sit there and think, well, there's going to be consequences to what I'm doing. I could hit someone. I could get arrested. I could crash my car. I could whatever, right? Or just wake up tomorrow with that cold dread of having done something dangerous and thinking about how bad things could have been or whatever, right? <laughs> you can either do that, or you can just say, you know, fuck it. I'm allowed to do whatever the hell I want, and I'm, you know, I'm going to pull a Lindsay Lohan and just, you know, do whatever I want, right? Fame is fame gives me immunity from everything or whatever, right? And well, so, taking a step back too, I mean, it it re it requires the capacity for evaluating a long-term consequence just to be able to get behind the wheel of a car, whether you're drunk or not. That's true, of course, yeah, and there are levels, right? Otherwise, how do you know what this machine is going to do and where it's going to take you? Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, Lindsay Lohan was chasing someone in a car, right? So, I mean, I, I know that you're all up on this Lindsay Lohan stuff, but because uh, <laughs> um, I know that... Uh, oh, yeah, I'm totally plugged in, man. Core, you and Hillary. But... Um, uh, but but then, yeah, my, uh, and, and to me, it's, uh, the reason is, of course, you can always look to people who, who, um, who act in a pretty irrational, short-term, uh, quote, deterministic manner, right? I mean, the guy who, every time anybody looks at him funny, 
he starts a fight. Well, that looks pretty determined, right? But that's because he's not exercising his choice to look at the longer-term consequences, and free will is a muscle, like anything else, right? And free will is like health, right? I mean, if, uh, if, you, if you exercise free will and you, you defer immediate gratification for the sake of longer-term gains, right, dieting or whatever, then you're exercising your mind to be able to view longer-term consequences. And so uh, it's, it's a muscle. You work it, you use it, or you lose it. Right? Free will, I don't think it's just an innate attribute. It's something that, right, I mean, if you look back at yourself a couple of years ago, right, in terms of the freedom that you had to make decisions about your life that would benefit you in the longer term, it's quite different from what you have now, right? Back then, oh, you were much more happy. Um, you were secure. You had an income. So just look at all the benefits that philosophy has brought to your life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's way better. Yeah. I can't believe you responded to that email. Man, oh man, caught another one. Hey, I don't want to be the only one who ends up unemployed. I want buddies. Go <laughs> <laughs> down alone on this ship of philosophy, baby. <laughs> Uh, sorry, right, right. who uh, who's, uh, wants, uh, wants to jump in with a question, comment? I don't think he specifically said that he's going to support everything that I've said, so I'm not sure we can do that. <laughs> yes, Rod, go ahead. So here's the, the question that always pops up in my mind when I'm pondering this whole determinism thing or someone brings it up is that um, I just don't, I don't get what the point of it is. It's like, if determinism is the answer, then what's the question? And if we, if we can figure out what that question is, maybe that might help us understand the, um, the motivation behind positing something like that. Well, do, I think that, I mean, there's a factual motivation, which is people want to explain, and they always take this as science explains the universe and so on. I think there's a, there's a psychological motivation for me, though. I'll just touch on it briefly and let me know what you think. This, this space of sitting in the unknown is, is very uncomfortable for people, right? So people invent governments because they don't know how society is going to organize itself in the absence of violence, right? And, and people invent gods because they don't know where the thunder comes from and they don't know where the world comes from and they don't know what the purpose of their lives is, right? And they won't sit in that place of not knowing. And we don't know what free will is from a biological or a scientific standpoint. And I've always maintained this, right? Determinism could very well turn out to be true, right? And free will is just another illusion, right? But, but there certainly seems to be quite a lot of evidence against that, and certainly my own personal experience of that, right? It's, it's sort of the difference between saying, like, the world looks, looks flat to me when it's actually round, but determinism is saying the world doesn't even exist, right? That's just a whole lot different for me. It's not just a matter of perspective. But maybe. It turns out to be the case. Everything's predetermined. But I think that determinism are not secure enough to sit in that space of not knowing. Right? That space of not knowing is quite uncomfortable, right? Because everybody's just a know-it-all right, on the planet. And philosophers, as Socrates onwards have said, that you know, the, the, the value is in not knowing something. Because when you don't know something, you, you look for answers. Right? And I talk about this in the, in the book, Entre the Journey of Illusion, available at lulu.com. But, uh, so I don't think that determinists can sit in that space and say, well, yeah, there's atoms, there's physical forces, there's energy. How on earth can that think and, and have free will and have choice. How can atoms have choice, right? And I mean, it, it, nobody knows, right? And I don't know, you don't know, nobody knows. Uh, but staying in that space of not knowing is very helpful, and I don't think that they have the maturity 
or the self-confidence to be able to say, I don't know. So I'm guessing these are people who were punished a lot when they were kids for not knowing stuff and, you know, given unreasonable expectations and so on. But, I, yeah, I mean, the, the, that to me seems like the most... Whenever people just can't sit in that space of not knowing, uh, then they just retard the progress of the species enormously. Well, one thing that I always wonder about is that it, it always seems to me, like I get the feeling when I'm talking to someone who's defending determinism that I just get this image in my mind of it being just the perfect alibi because any any action under determinism there's there's absolutely no moral content to it whatsoever so you know if if you know my parents beat up on me and stuck me in a cave or a cage and poked me with sticks well then there's no harm in in saying in going over to dinner with my parents because there's absolutely nothing that they could have done differently, right? Well, and it I seems agree like with it's you like it, Sorry to interrupt. it seems I, like I, it's a last-ditch attempt at uh, at at forgiving, I guess you could say, abusive people sometimes. And I, I'm sorry to, uh, to interrupt, and I'll just touch on this very, very quickly. But I would agree with you if determinists said there was no such thing as ethics. Yeah, but they don't. Well, some do. Well, those are the people that you just don't want to talk to at all, then. I mean, well, well I don't the, want to talk to <laughs> The hard determinists do say that. They so say that that's a... Yeah, they, they say that that's a, uh, 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 an illusion, right? That ethics is an illusion. That everything well, they that say you it, do. but they don't, they don't live by it, though, because ask them why they're not just going out and taking money from people for their living instead of having... Oh, they'd say it's because it. that's the way I'm culturally acclimatized or whatever, right? Yeah. But sure. the other thing, of course, what I was... I, I think I... I just, I'm sorry, I was, I was just trying to remember that. I think I had one email exchange with a guy about that, right? And, of course, because my sort of theory of ethics is around this universally for preferable behavior... That's what I started working on him with, uh, with this, right? So he said, there's no such thing as ethics. And I said, so do you believe that there's no such thing as universally preferred states, right? Like to not kill. And he said, yeah, there's no such thing as universally preferred states. It's like, but do you think that determinism is universally true? He said, well, yeah. And so I said, well, do you think that believing in the truth rather than believing in something that is false, like free will is better. Like, is it better to believe in the truth or is it better to believe in a falsehood? He said, well, it's better to believe in the truth. And I said, is it better to believe in the truth just for you or is it better that everyone should believe in the truth? He said, it's better that everyone should believe in the truth. And I said, so you do have universally preferable behavior, which is to believe the truth, right? And so once we had established that truth was better than falsehood, that adherence to the truth was better than rejection of the truth, then, of course, we have a foundation for building ethics, at which point he stopped responding. Yeah. So well, you can also say, like, what made you uh, settle on uh, stringing a bunch of sounds together that form the English language that I'm able to understand and things like that. Yeah, I said, uh, you know, you can always type back in wingdings, right? And the guy says, what the hell? And you say, well, uh, I don't believe that uh, using uh, uh, language is, is, a, is a good idea. It's always a good idea, right? So I can't yeah. debate with you if you're not going to use English or a language that we agree on. Like, well, then you have another universally preferred, right? So, <laughs> so yeah, those people for sure, uh, I would say that those people have probably done some bad themselves, you know, and one of those bad things they've done is teaching people that ethics is invalid, right? It doesn't exist. That's a pretty bad thing to do, right? To go around saying, undermining people's confidence in, in ethics and virtue is pretty corrupt, right? So those people... Uh, probably become more hardcore determinists because of bad things that they've done 
uh, in their life, but maybe the compatibilists are just, maybe they're trying to forgive other people or whatever. In which case, they'll just, you know, give up the idea of virtue and so on. But everybody gets deep down that if, if they bring up determinism as a value, then they're already, they already have a hierarchy of values. Truth is better than falsehood and so on. And there's, I mean, certainly in our conversation, it's very easy for us because of our definition of virtue that we're working with, the conditionally, probably you know, the one that's, that's uh, floating around that seems to have taken a lot of punches and stayed intact. That, that they, they can just be taken down in like five minutes. And that's pretty humiliating, right? Like, yeah. if I'm trying to learn Mandarin and I'm still not very good after six months, I don't feel like an idiot, right? Because it's a tough language for, you know, skinny white guy like me to learn. But if, uh, if we are in fact, uh, if somebody's argument for determinism that they've held onto and propagated for ten years can be brought down in five minutes, ooh, <laughs> you know, that's pretty bad, right? Yeah, well, in in a lot of those cases too, those folks haven't really constructed those arguments themselves. They've they're just echoing what they've read in other books. And and to the untutored, they seem pretty smart, right? Yeah, sure, sure. Because right. like, wow, so everything's determined, but we still have free choice. Wow, I guess that must be like quantum physics, because. It, it don't get it, right? But so to to people who aren't confident, who aren't particularly intelligent, they sound smart, right? In the same way that to people who aren't tutored on the nature of government, somebody saying like I was reading about Shaquille O'Neal the other day because I'm always down with the Shaq and what he's up to, but uh, <laughs> uh, he was uh, he's concerned about childhood obesity, right? So uh, he's not starting up a fat camp for kids although I think he's doing a reality show about that. What he's doing is he's going to Florida, and he, or he lives in Florida, or whatever, and he's saying to the government, or he's trying to get this thing going where they, they reinstitute uh, physical education in, in high schools, right, as a mandatory subject, right? So, so to the untutored <laughs> person, right, he, he seems like, wow, that's a really good thing for him to do, right? And get those kids moving and keep them from getting diabetes and heart disease later on in life. What a, what a philanthropist, right? Right, so, so to people who aren't suited in ethics and the reality of government, he doesn't look like somebody who wants to point guns at a bunch of kids and their parents. Right? He looks like a really nice guy, like the people who advocate welfare. To the untutored, it's like, wow, they really do care about the poor. Right? It's not like they're using guns to <laughs> entrap people in a life of crime and, and despair. Uh, they, they, you know, not, they're not advocating a gulag for the poor. They really care about the poor. And to the untutored, the compatibilists in particular look like you know, reasonable compromisers. They've, you know, they don't have the mess of free will, but they've kept all of the values of, of virtue and so on. So to people who aren't trained or tutored, these people look smart and virtuous and wise and good. It's just that once you spend 10 minutes on each of their arguments, realize it doesn't They're not. Yeah, they're not. They're the opposite, right? Because... Because, and they're not the opposite until you tell them, right? Shaquille O'Neal probably thinks he's a great guy for doing this, right? But, and, and if you sit down with him and say, you know, dude, <laughs> you know, you don't, uh, you don't settle a basketball game outside of the Bronx with gunfire, and uh, you're trying to settle this by using guns, right? And if he goes, oh, man, you know, <laughs> I totally didn't get that. That's terrible. I'm going to stop and apologize. That's great. But, but if he keeps plowing on, right, then he's, uh, he's no longer such a good guy, right? Right, perpetuating the the myth. But getting back to um, the free will question again. All right, but that's four bucks. That's all you get. Go on. <laughs> I knew I'd get one in there somewhere. <laughs> Greg got back. Go on. 
um, if because you you were you had gotten to the point where you were at least it sounded to me like you were equating uh, rational consciousness with free will as one and the same essentially. Well, I mean, it's uh, right. yeah. I mean, you you have to be able to balance long term and short term gains and consequent and and uh, losses in order to be able to make a choice. And to do that, you have to have rational consciousness for sure. So then, then, then it couldn't free will as a, an aspect of humanity couldn't be um, I, I, I don't see then how it could be what you were arguing in that podcast as a, a, a kind of a reaction formation to mysticism why? I mean, if a bird develops, if if if, if, a, if a rodent develops wings to avoid ground predators, it has developed a physical attribute as a defense mechanism. So, oh, so then you're actually saying that it was a, um, you're actually saying it was a, a like a, like a like an evolutionary step then. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, then, then what you're saying is that um, uh, biologically, mystics predate. Rationalists. Sure. Which we know is like historically the case, right? Now, I don't, again, I'm not saying that I know whether it was evolutionary or just, you know, like the way that you can just become smarter in your life that people just figured. I don't. I mean, I would doubt that it's evolutionary, but for sure, I would say that the predation of mysticism uh, predated rational uh, free will. Well, historically, yes. Sure. But does that necessarily mean that the capacity for both was not also present at the same time, both mysticism and rationalism? Well, sure, sure. Look, I mean, um, uh, we know that mysticism, uh, mysticism is like taxation, right? I mean, if taxation is virtuous, then you should give 100% of your income to the government. But the problem is then you die, right, because you can't eat. <laughs> no food, no shelter, right? So the same right. thing, like if the next life is great and God is good and, and, and he wants to meet you, right, then you should kill yourself, right? That's, you know, that I can't right, figure out why Tammy Faye went for radiation treatment. It doesn't make any sense to me. But, um, uh, which so, makes ideas like that self-evidently non-virtuous, if virtue well, sure. is the preservation of your own life. Right, so here we have uh, the mystical imperative of, of death is better than life. And, uh, and we have the state imperative that uh, violence is better than rationality, that surrendering your, your, your resources to, to your superiors is better uh, than anything. Right, which is sort of a consequence of the first. Right, so any society which believed all of that would instantly self-destruct, right? Everybody, they'd all pull a Jim Jones, right, uh, and, and company, and they'd all kill themselves. And I'm sure that there'd be a large number of those comet-worshipping nutbags throughout society who've all just jumped off a cliff like lemmings and died. So those beliefs don't tend to last very long, right? So with the predation of mysticism must come the skepticism of rationality. Like you kind of pay lip service to it, but you kind of don't believe it, but, but yes, you do. But, you know, but this is a paradox that then provokes uh, our need for rationality to evaluate and to understand, right? And, and so must come. Well, yeah, because I would say that uh, um, those societies which, which swallowed mysticism and violence wholesale just self-destructed, right? So, so you're not saying that... Uh, oh, sorry.
rock it. Break it down, brother. <laughs> Just when I was about to annihilate your entire argument. Yeah, sorry, I'll turn it off in a second. Oh, somebody's put on Don and Paul, right? Let me put on my parachute pants. Yeah, I think my, my pants just flared. Alright, so somebody put us on hold. Did anyone just join? I don't think so. Play this again. Oh, great. Now we get to edit this. Greg, did you lose your train of thought? <laughs> uh, um, I, I know you're hoping beyond hope that I did. You didn't? Okay. <laughs> Ooh, you should see the dance. Ow, my back. Sorry, go on. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, I, where was I? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, it, 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 um, mysticism predates rationalism. Provokes. Historically. Provokes rationalism. It provokes it. Yeah, I can say... But in order, but in order for that to be true, in order for that to be true, both have to be present in a biological sense in the organism that's um, exhibiting the behavior, right? For sure, yeah. So, some, sure. so someone is... Um, Trying to peddle mysticism, uh, sense, you know, that, and all of the, the consequent self-destruction that comes with that, and the natural reaction to that is uh, rationality as a self-defense mechanism. Um, so then, what you're saying is not that, not that, um, uh, that it, that it must be there in in the sense of that. That um, um, there's some there's some plan in mind uh, historically, but but more in terms of in order for the situation that exists now to exist, this must have been what the case was. Yeah, you, you can't have mysticism without some capacity for rational consciousness, right? I mean, you're, you're chimps don't have must. mysticism, right? Chimps don't have priests and so on, right? Because they don't have that capacity. Human beings had to have had a breakthrough in mental capacity in order for mysticism to be a viable predation strategy, right? And right. And at the capacity, same time that that... Go on. Okay, sorry. I was just going to say that that, uh, that, same, that same breakthrough that brought that capacity also brought the capacity for rationality. Right, right. And, and they were, and they were just... Effect, right? So that the, the priests who concoct tales that are completely self-destructive wipe out their whole society if people believe them, right? So along with mysticism has to come skepticism in order for society to survive, right? Well, uh, they're just competing forms of uh, the next um, variation in evolution, right? And so whichever one is more successful is the one that's going to survive long term. 
Sure. Look, I mean, and, and I know this is just, I mean, this is based on the lab called Steph, right, which is that I would not have 838 podcasts if we were already living in Libertopia, right? Right, right, right. That's I mean, the, the irrationality <laughs> of the world is what provoked me into sort of a ferocious rationalism, right? So, uh, and again, this, you know, this is just my sort of theory. I mean, there's no particular proof yet, but I think there's some logical consistency in this as a, as a, as a possible right. way of understanding how mysticism is a sort of provocation for rationality. I, I guess what I guess what uh, what's eating at me then though is that uh, it's, it is is a sort of chicken and egg question. That, yeah, well, know. I don't think. See, but the rationality can't provoke mysticism. Well, I don't think. Um, well, I mean, rationality bothers people who already are mysticism, but rationality can't provoke uh, mysticism. Say again? You, you cut out a little bit. Provoke mysticism. Yeah. Like the free market doesn't pro- provoke subsidies, right? Doesn't provoke the government, right? They already well. have <laughs> a government in order for people to to fight the free market. The free market just despite, uh, right? But rationality doesn't provoke mysticism. It already has to be there, and it has to be a vested interest in mysticism. Uh, to begin with, right? Rationality is, I mean, what we use, what we develop to defend ourselves against irrational attacks, right? Like, right. Rationality is like the body's defense, me- like the the body's defense mechanism, right? or the mind's defense mechanism. And and it uh, and so all we're all you're really saying then is that it was the characteristic that was first expressed and thus uh, provoked. Uh, the expression of rationality in response to it. And we know this for sure. I'm sorry, but we, we, we know this even within the realm of mysticism, right? So the mysticism which said everybody kill themselves and go, go meet uh, you know, Gog Magog or whatever, that mysticism died right. out, right? The mysticism which said, give me five bucks now and you'll have three cows in five minutes, that mysticism also died out because it was so transparently not true. Right, so even within the mystical realms, you had to find, right, so you had to say, well, God is the best thing ever, but you can never see him, he only speaks through me, right? Because a mysticism which said, there is a God, and he will speak to you individually, that's all I need to say, that mysticism wouldn't work, right, as far as preying on people, right? Because people would just go have their own conversations with God, right? They wouldn't need a priest. Right, so, and, and sorry, so, and the last thing is, so, once you can push the rewards beyond death, then it becomes completely unverifiable. Once you can tie the rituals into, like, birth and, and death and marriage and children and all the major events, then it becomes easy to remember. And, like, even within the realm of mysticism, there had to be a certain, and, and of course you have to say that uh, death is the best thing ever, but it's immoral to kill yourself, right? <laughs> I mean, you have, to, you have to come up with all these balances. You have to refine mysticism to the point where it can, like... Any kind of um, predation that's too intense will kill off uh, the host, right? So you have to find a balance. You have to make people tortured about sexuality, but not hate sexuality to the point where they won't reproduce, because otherwise you won't have any kids to prey on in the future, right? So you can't, you can't make it sterile, right? So, so there's a whole lot of, that goes on even within mysticism that is around fine-tuning the predatory mechanism of mysticism. Uh, as there is in statism, right? As we see when the government gets oh. too big, it'll try and cut back in certain areas and so on. 
so, but and but within all of that, there is still the capacity and the growth of of, uh, of rationality. So these two characteristics then of the human mind, um, mysticism and rationality, really have two different goals in mind. One being uh, exploitation, the other being cooperation. The no, two refutation. fundamental. <laughs> no refutation. No, re- no they, they, we have different. Like mysticism and and rationality have different goals in mind in the same way that a lion and a gazelle have different goals in mind, right? Right, but we're we're the same species. Well, yeah, but right. I mean the whole problem with human human beings are their own ecosystem, right? In a way that no other species other than ants are, right? The, hu- the, 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 the people I fear are not lions. I, I don't fear lions and tigers and sharks. Right? I feel like tax collectors and jailers and right those people, right? So, and, but and, bi- and biologically, there's biologically there's really only two there's only two strategies available to any organism, right? That is uh, exploitation or predation, um, and on the other hand, uh, cooperation or uh, well, production, um, right? That's ours. Say again? Well, production is ours, right? That's that's the big difference between us, right? Production. Yeah, production Explain. is ours. You, you said there's predation uh, or what was the other one? Uh, cooperation. Predation either or cooperation. Yeah, there's, right. there's either Exploitation be eaten, whatever, right? But, but we have production as a way of, of, of creating... Re- we create resources, right? Rather than just eat what's there. You, you plant your crops. You don't just sort of run around eating berries or whatever, right? So we have the capacity for production, which is so much more uh, valuable and powerful than uh, just eat or be, be eaten, right? Which fundamentally, though, is really a cooperative effort. For sure, yeah, for sure. You can so, do it alone, but it certainly so, is enhanced to do it in a, in a group setting. Right, you're, it's far more, you're far more successful as an organism if you have others, uh, other organisms, uh, like-minded organisms, willing to cooperate with you to do this, right? So uh, in the same way that... You know, one guy trying to mine iron ore out of a mountainside, he's going to die before he finds any. But a thousand well, guys... someone to buy the iron ore, right? Someone else has got to be producing to make it worthwhile. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, or either that or, you know, maybe he wants to hammer himself a plowshare or something of his own, right? It's going to take him his entire life to make his own set of tools. Right. Whereas if he's got a team of people that are willing to help him, then not only can he make his own set of tools, but he can make tools for the entire tribe. Sure. So that's one, so that's one form of, uh, that's one strategy for survival for the organism as a, as a group. The other strategy is the, the predation strategy, which is it's every man for himself. We all just kind of grab what we can get, and uh, whoever survives, survives, right? Sorry to interrupt in the for just a sec, but there's no society that conforms to either of those specifications. All societies are combinations of people who produce and people who prey. Okay. Right? Even a primitive right. Stone Age society is going to have a king and a priest, right, who don't produce but prey upon their own people. That's true. Right, so so, so the, the the human society is an ecosystem of predators, uh, of parasites, and of producers, right? Okay. 
And if, if, the, right. if and the, uh, the predators are like the warriors and the parasites are the priests and the producers are the, the poor bastards like, like us who, they, who produce stuff that they uh, manipulate or steal or whatever, right? Right. And so there's this tension, right? So that the, the, um, the warriors will just go kill people, but if they kill everyone, they'll actually have to pick up a hoe and do recording. some damn work, right? Stopped recording conversation. Well, that, that's not going to work too well, right? So uh, whereas the manipulators have to lie about cause and effect to get people to give them stuff out of fear of consequences, right? Negative consequences for failing to comply with the mystic's commandments. Uh, but they also have a problem, right? In that their claims can be verified. Uh, and that, uh, you know, if they say that if they move the, the rewards to beyond death, then logically, logically people would want to kill themselves. But then if everyone kills themselves, the priests also have to pick up a plowshare and do a damn bit of work, right? Which they don't really <laughs> want to do, right? That's not the point. So there's this tension, so, right? There's the predator and the prey, and there's a tension between them, right? So the predators are always trying to catch the prey, and the prey are always coming up with defenses against the predators. But you can't escape the Stone Age tribe, so you have to come up with intellectual defenses. Uh, around, uh, you know, hoarding stuff for yourself, despite the fact that you have to come up with skepticism about the claims put forward in order to... And, and I would say that's sort of the root of, of rationality. Right. So, so are human beings, then, the only organism that actually commingle all three of these strategies in one species? Or, or can we think of an example in another species where the same is true? I don't think I there think is. I mean, I don't think there is. The, the only other species I think that wars on its own kind is um, uh, is, is the ants. But of course, they don't have priests, right? Do they war on their own kind, or or just inter interspecies wars, like you know, red red ants versus black or whatever? Well, I, I'm no expert, but I, that's sort of the end. My understanding is that they're the only other species that, that attacks uh, well, within their own species. Although spiders do that, too, to some extent. Spiders and praying mantis, right? I mean, well, that's for reproduction, though. That's not uh, for food. Well, I guess the, the two are sort of co-joined. But, but they, they're the ones who actually have sort of mass combat against... Uh, but, but it doesn't really matter whether other animals do it or not. We certainly know that human beings do. Right. So I guess the question is... Who are we to say which strategy is the right one or the wrong one? Well, that's UPB, though, right? Well, sure. But why, why should people who you know, prefer predation over uh, cooperation, why should they subscribe to UPB? Well, they claim to, right? That's the issue, right? It, it's the hypocrisy that's the, the, the root of corruption in this area, right? As it is in all intellectual areas, right? Right, so, I mean, it's the old example of taxation, right? I mean, if, if taking money through force is, is a virtuous action, then everyone should get to do it, right? Because they say it's <laughs> virtuous, and they don't say, well, it's just virtuous because I have the gun. They say it's virtuous because it's the right thing to do, right? And so the priests say, well, you know, being, obeying God is virtuous, and, and everyone can have a, you know, God talks to people and so on, right? So it's just the consistency. The consistency is the weakness in all of these predatory strategies, and it's the lying that makes them fundamentally so wrong, right, that they claim these universal values that, you know, upon five minutes examination turn out to be, you know, criminally non-universal, and of so, course, if, so people, if, they, if they put them forward as, 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 you know, if they were honest, then it wouldn't work. So it's, it's the lying that's the problem. The, the, disconnect, the disconnect between 
what is said and what is done. Yeah, I mean the blatant hypocrisy, right? That's that's the part that and that's, uh, can't survive. And and that's a problem. Why? Well, because they're they're saying these are universal rules, but then they don't follow them. Right? Okay, just using those as a uh, uh, as a tool of um, exploitation. Well, sure, yeah. I mean, it's it's the date rape thing, right? I mean, if somebody puts something into your drink and then you know rapes you, uh, that's not good, right? Because you know they they're not saying it's universal, right? Right, in in the Nietzschean sense, right? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we had somebody who had a comment or a question. Um, Carl, you want? Oh, hi. Can you hear me, sir? I sure can. Sorry, sorry, we took so long, but. Uh, Oh, that's uh, all right. To interrupt Greg? Yeah, that's it. Sure, this is uh, Carl talking. Hi. Um, hi. I was thinking um, the, well, there's a conundrum of causality. So causality seems to exist in the universe, uh, you know, and uh, everything seems to be caused uh, physically, physical reality. Um, actually, let me jump from that. The, the success of cooperation is something that you know, people discover over time. And people profit. Cooperation requires rules like morality. And people profit. Human, human beings who cooperate in society, the social order profits, and individuals profit by cooperating in society. And, uh, and thus they profit from self-government. They profit from morality if, if, as long as a predator doesn't manage to kill the whole thing. Well, I'm sorry to interrupt you uh, just as you're starting, but uh, it seems to me that the Nazis were highly organized and cooperative in the killing of the Jews. So cooperation is a double-edged sword, right? I guess uh, cooperation meaning non-predation. I mean, meaning a non. I mean, it would require the moral principle of thou shalt not kill or, or whatever. Well, sure, but I mean, th- then 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 it's cooperation with moral rules, right? Right. Uh, sorry, can I just, uh, uh, for the remaining people who are on, I, I have no idea whether or not I'm recording this call. I, I, I know I've got some of it, but I don't know if I've got much of it. So if, so if people could just hit the record button, it's right above the conversation. Recording conversation. Thanks, I might ask for that. I don't know if I've got, I don't know if I've got that anymore. I don't know. I, I, I'm just looking, sorry, I'm just looking at the file signs here. It's not growing, so I don't know if it's still uh, still kicking around or not. But uh, anyway, uh, now that we've got recording, whoever's got it, if you could just sort of oh. uh, email it to me, that would be great. Uh, yeah, so, so sorry, cooperation cooperation plus ethics is great, right? But cooperation without ethics is like, you know... Uh, yeah, absolutely, with ethics, with uh, rules. Maybe. With non-predatory rules, that, that, that leads to the division of labor and, uh, you know, the... the uh, High, much higher production and uh, material wealth and so right. forth. So I had a, a couple of comments about uh, one or two other things, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, you mentioned... Um, uh, you were mentioned you know earlier in the show... Why can I be totally annoying? I'm so sorry. Let me hang up and come back in just so I can make sure the recording starts again. Uh, I'll be back in like literally five seconds. Sorry about that. Okay. Before we go... Uh, Sorry, go ahead. Before we go, yeah, before we go on with uh, Carl's um, new direction here, I asked him if I'd be able to jump in with one more thing on this uh, evolution thing. Yep. And I think it's just a a uh, a little bit of a different spin or a different perspective from the evolutionary model that might help to refine this a bit. Um, I think the thing that we were sort of missing with the evolution um, model was that. Uh, just say, for example, that you have a 
a, a population of this one kind of beetle or something like that, and 5% of the beetles are bright red and the rest of them are the color of the leaves around them or something. Um, and as long as there are no predators around to uh, that really um, hunt by, by color, by visual or by seeing color, then all these beetles will have a pretty uniform, you know, this, uh, the, uh, the ratio of uh, hereditary um, expression of these colors will stay relatively um, same, the same or, or constant, 5% red and 95% green leafy color. Right. But now if a, uh, if a predator happens on a scene that has eyesight that can pick up the red, then, or I mean, not the red, yeah, I guess I got the ratios backwards. Okay, most of them are red, 95% red, 5% um, green, I should say. So now a, a, um, a predator happens on the scene and they can pick up the uh, all the red stuff but not the green stuff. Suddenly the population of the beetles is going to, of course, get smaller in the band, but um, the, the population is going to dwindle quite a lot initially where they all the red ones are being wiped out by the new predator, but then later on the the um, green beetles will start to take over the ecosystem under the new cover of their camouflage. Right. And so you, you'll go from a population that is, is uh, you know, a certain size with only a small fraction of them being green to a smaller size, and then it'll grow again with all these greens, and the reds will be pretty much wiped out. And I think that that might be a new kind of a twist or a model to look at this uh, the evolution of this uh, the defense mechanism because it all it seemed like we were coming at it from in the conversation earlier we we're coming at it from the the uh, side of the the predator provoked this reaction instead of the it's not really a reaction it's a quality that has always been there it's just never been really necessary until the predator shows up to hunt the ones who don't have that quality you know is that making any sense? Well, I think that's true, except that um, the color thing is fixed, right? Whereas the um, the rationality and predation of mysticism uh, grows, right? It's sort of, I mean, to use my favorite word, asymptotic, right? So, um, it, it, you know, the the, the uh, like the uh, in, in northern England, there were the moths that were uh, lighter colored, and there were the moths that were darker colored, and they all sit on these tree trunks, and then the pollution yeah. started turning the tree trunks darker, right? So all the lighter moths got killed. Uh, or eaten by the birds, and the darker moths survived. Um, but that's not quite the same relationship that goes on uh, between uh, the sort of farming the uh, productive uh, through through uh, exploitation, the mystical exploitation or violent predation that goes on, uh, because there is an ever-escalating consciousness requirement that goes on, right? So the stories of predation have to get better and better, and then the rationality to figure those out has to get better and better, so... Um, so I, I think it's a little bit different because color is pretty much fixed, right? Color gets optimal and then it stops, whereas this kind of stuff uh, cycles on itself and gets, it escalates and gets, gets larger and larger. So I, I agree with you that, that the metaphor is a useful introduction, but it doesn't have that same mutually provoking within a single generation, within a single day or two, right? Somebody can come up with a new, oh, I just got a vision from God that says X, and then other people are like, huh. Okay, well, that's a really, uh, he's threatening me with really big consequences, but they have to be far enough off that I can't validate them. And compared to the other god, and, you know, like th th that can occur very, very rapidly 
uh, and is not quite the same as color, which once it reaches its optimal state, doesn't, like a tiger's stripes doesn't change as long as its environment remains from relatively stable. Sure, but the, uh, I guess, you know, our, uh, our minds are flexible enough that we don't have to rely on generations of tweaking to get there. Um, right. But with, you know, even if we were to just kind of speed up the clock a bit on this, the biological side of this, we would see if we just take our time frame and, and refocus it on a much larger scale, like, you know, not quite geological ages, but, you know, quite long, we would see a very similar mechanism, I think, in the biological is where you'd have, um, you know, you'd have the predator that would have, at first it would have eyesight that was just able to to discern the really bright reds, because that's all it would need, and be able to feed just fine on that. Well, then when they killed all of those, they'd have to have, you know, the the predators that don't have the super keen eyesight would start dwindling because they uh, they only got the brightest of the bright reds, and now that they're all gone, well, these guys don't have anything to feed on anymore. So then the predators that have, you know, even sharper senses, they can go for the, the borderline reddish-greenish and so on and so forth, and you'd see over many generations... Yeah, predators with keener and keener eyesight surviving better, and the beetles with the uh, better and better cam camouflage surviving. And I think that it has the same model as what you're saying. It's just we have to take our uh, time frame and stretch it out because the biological clock is a lot slower than the, the mental or whatever you'd say. Well, but I think, and I agree with you again, that it's, it's, it's very close, but I think there's a fundamental difference which might explain our incredible capacities in this area insofar as in all biology, there is a limit on the perfectibility of any organ, right? So in biology, you could come up with some eye that could see all conceivable spectrums plus infrared plus x-rays plus, 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 right? Yeah. But um, that would be too much of an expenditure of energy uh, and resources and the, the, the time to mature that kind of eye and the, prob the possibility of that eye going wrong, there would be an upper limit Right? So as soon as a predator can see well enough to get his prey, the eye stops developing. Right? And the prey will hide some more, the eye will get a little better. But there is an upward limit to, um, to, the, um, to the sort of excellence aspect of biology. Right? So no, it, and that's, where I, that's actually where I was going with this, and that's why I think that we might be missing a little bit on the, the flavor of what I was saying. But I just want to restate that... that um, or maybe I just didn't get there completely, is that with the, uh, with the predators in human society, they do only just get to the point where they can feast off of us at a comfortable rate without having to, you know, refine their model any better, their model of predation. And then when there's a, you know, that's what I'm thinking is that if we get to this kind of a, uh, a holding or a status quo or a, uh, Something where the predators and the the prey are the 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 hosts, the the parasites and the hosts are living at sort of a tenuous stalemate, but then all of a sudden there'll be a a shifting of power where there is an increased amount of predation. Maybe there's some form of technology that makes it easier for governments to to tax or something like that. You know, the, the advent of the communications or something and make it easier to keep better records on how much taxation we're doing, things like that, or the laffer curve or whatever. Well, it's in those times when the, when the predators make a sudden, you know, leap in ability to consume or to, to eat the rest of us, then that's when the societies that end up flourishing are the ones that um, 
have a greater preponderance of thinking individuals, whereas before it was just kind of limited by the um, the technology that the predators had or the uh, the abilities that the predators had. And I guess it would be kind of like when the new world opened up and the free thinkers were the kind of the people that said, you know, I, I can survive better in a wide open frontier than I can in this in this area that I'm in right now, in England or in Europe or wherever. I'm going to go strike out on my own and see what I can make of it. Well, that was a like an impulse, like a, a bashing on the side of the pressure cooker that blew the lid off for a while in favor of the, the, um, the free thinkers, I think. And then the it took a while, but the uh, the predators soon caught up to that and figured out how to shackle all these people in the frontier too. Right. Or if somebody figures out how to domesticate the cow, then suddenly there's more to prey on, right? Or somebody figures out how to do crop rotation, there's more food, right? So production. Right. The reason that production remained so low throughout human history was that production would simply be uh, stolen, right? Because the more more you would produce the more society would then shift to being the, the ruling class, the, the praying class, right? And that's why production, right. production would simply increase your enslavement, right? And right. so that's why it remains so, so low, right? So I would say that what swelled the class was, um, was uh, production, and then the class would get big to the point where it multiplied and then consumed the host, which meant that, you know, the, the, the Egyptian empires would fall and then the, the Greek and Roman empires would fall and our empire will fall and so on, right? So the hosts multiply, the, the, pre the predators or the parasites multiply uh, when there's an increase in production, right? As we can see that as, as the capitalist economy is getting more and more powerful in terms of its production, we're just swelling the ruling class, right? It, it always gets bigger, right? And so production just, just causes your own demise, which is sort of the negative uh, that yeah. comes from that. But there is, uh, there is no, there doesn't seem to be any limit on the excellence of the human mind, right? Whereas there is a limit on how fast animals can run or how high they can fly or how long they can hold their breath or the colors that they can adapt to. And I think that's why we've gone so nuts in terms of our abilities, right? So, so wildly out of proportion with the rest of the animal kingdom because there, this, is the, this is the organ that doesn't require a massive amount of additional energy to, to create a huge amount uh, of, of additional excellence, right? Uh, so, oh, right. Right? Yeah. So, so every other organ, uh, it, it requires, a, like, so a giraffe's neck is, is limited by the fact that the giraffe's heart has to be strong enough to pump the blood up to the brain, right? So the yeah. giraffe's neck can only get so long before it runs into its physical limitations, right? The, the carbon-based muscle firing of a cheetah can only get so fast before it simply can't run any further. Or if the muscles get stronger, then it, it, it requires more animals to eat that it could conceivably catch, even with the additional speed, right? So there's a limit on every biological organ except for the human mind, which is why I think we just took off so wildly. Um, and, of course, the fact that we have a much shorter cycle for evolution and that it occurs within right. the human mind, within the human species. But this is the one, this is why we're such an anomaly in the universe, is that this is the one organ that doesn't require ten times the energy to get five times as good. Right? I mean, we can get hundreds of times as good. I, I, I don't consume more calories as I get wiser, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. I think, uh, more accurately, I think you could say that it's, it's the one organ that has yet to reach its limit. I, I think there must be a limit to what the human mind can do, obviously, but it's just that we, we're still comfortably in the zone of we haven't reached our second wind yet or whatever, you know, where there's plenty of stride left in us. Right, um, right. I think I think you're right. But I mean, compared to 
the linear and, and diminishing returns that, are, that come from every other organ. The yeah. mind is just way out of space. And like we hit some threshold of complexity that can build on itself without requiring additional calories. I mean, of course, what we do pay for it in terms of is the horribly long time it takes for children to reach maturity, right? The latency period where the brain is still developing. But uh, it, it is just this one miraculous organ that can, that, that can, you know, multiply its capacities, you know, dozens or hundreds or thousands of times without requiring, you know, incredibly uh, extended increases in energy. And of course, one of the big things that occurred was that we stood up Right. I mean, that was that's one of the things that makes the brain possible. Right. Because when we were on all fours, um, our bodies were very hot. Right. Because the sun would beat down upon uh, the backs. And so you needed a lot of water to cool the body. As soon as we stood up and stayed upright, then the water uh, and the cooling mechanisms were much less required because we exposed less of our skin to the sun, which meant that there was additional water available to to create and nurture the brain, which the brain requires a lot of water. Right. So and oxygen. Right. So. So, I mean, it's just those kinds of little things, but it did create an organ that has no upward limit relative to every other organ. It effectively has no upward limit that uh, we have reached yet. And even if we reach our upward limit tomorrow, it's still, you know, uh, millions of times more powerful than any other relative organ that human beings have. Right. And then when we take the, um, when we take the, the production of our minds and things like that, there there is actually quite a bit of low... Um, I guess you could say energy requirement that goes into it, but that's been solved externally through capitalism by the um, because capital is the the reservation of production without consumption, and that's what allows people like Einstein to sit in front of a chalkboard all day instead of being out in the field having to do his thinking with his stick and a piece of dirt. Right, and this conversation to occur, of course, right, which is yeah, obviously, yeah, I mean. Uh, uh, all of this stuff does require a great deal of energy, but it's not directly inside the organism energy. It's it's stuff that has been able to be taken outside of the organism and and reserved in in the form of capital. So right, I, I think it's not entirely accurate that it's it's done without energy. It's just that we've figured out ways to to externalize that uh, the the storage of that energy. I think does, does that make any sense? No, that's right. I mean the um, the the uh the mother cheetah cannot cannot store up her running energy and pass it along to her children so they can run twice right. fast, right? But human beings, right. through language, have the capacity to not have to reinvent the wheel, right? So we, our, our minds can accumulate. I mean, obviously, we didn't invent the English language or the Internet or any of these kinds of things because that was Al Gore's job. But, um, but we have the capacity, in a sense, to store up the running uh, our, our running gives us more running to give our children. They can run even faster, and that's another reason why. I mean, human knowledge is doubling every 18 months. I think actually every 12 months now that we've got these conversations going. Uh, so uh, that, that's, a, that's another sort of capacity that, that we have. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, the, the biological metaphors work to a degree, but then there's just something about the brain that we don't understand about how it does all of these absolutely incredible things that it can, it can in, in certain situations such as pattern recognition, it can work, you know, thousands of times faster than the most powerful computer with only 150 to 200 synaptic jumps. I mean, we, nobody knows what the, how the hell it does that, but it's just an incredible organ. Yeah, I'm sorry, no, but now we, we hijacked somebody. Uh, we hijacked Carl. Yeah, I'm sorry. Still I did exhaust. Uh, I didn't yeah, go I... pretty far into that. So, Carl, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, thank that you. you taken so this, long. This actually segues into my uh, other one of my other questions. 
Um, I mean, the question, of course, what do, what do we do? We'll, I think we'll get the second wind, uh, Rod, when, or maybe it's the third wind, the second wind with capitalism, the third wind is really getting rid of the predators, you know, yeah. not just setting up another republic that will turn into an empire, but, uh, you know, getting rid of these predators once and for all. And uh, that requires, and of course, what do we do? And of course, Steph goes over this in his book. Uh, the predator, uh, with his mysticism, he gets the sanction of the victim because the victim is really afraid of, you know, what's the priest going to do to me if I speak the truth? So he can't speak the truth. But then that becomes the, and the real fear of our childhood and from the past becomes the vestigial, irrational fear of adults who really don't have to fear speaking the truth. And so, of course, as uh, Steph, you said, you know, uh, the most important thing is not to lie to other people, which is honesty. And, uh, and, and my question on that is, um, uh, I always thought of honesty kind of maybe from objectivist influence, starting from the self, and then you, uh, you, you need to be honest with yourself, and then you will not want to lie to other people who can possibly avoid it. Of course, it, it's a, it reinforces the honesty if you actually translate the physical reality by speaking the truth to others. So just you know, your comments on that. Yeah, no, I, I think the honesty is, is key, and, and it's, it's not even, I mean, I don't, I don't like to flog people over the head with virtue, or you must, or you should, or this or that. I mean, obviously, it'll make you happier uh, if, if, you're, if you're honest with people, but honesty, the reason that it's so important is that honesty is the opposite of exploitation, right? I mean, honesty is what we need, right? The, the predators are right. hidden. The predators are hidden in lies, and they know that they're lying, right? Because the moment that you point it out, they change the subject, right? So it is required to stop people from getting killed, right? It is required to stop wars. It is required to stop uh, violence. I mean, because all of that is hidden under a veneer of ethics, right? So the the, the lies, uh, the the truth is so important because it's it's the medicine that saves us, right? I mean, that, that saves our personal lives and incidentally the world, right? So... Uh, it is yeah. essential from that standpoint, but I don't like to sort of, you know, finger wag at people because that's just a bad way to teach ethics, right? Well, except the, you know, but yeah, speaking the truth is like not giving the moral sanction, or the sanction to the victim, as it were, the, you know, to uh, to others. Right, yeah. and and I think I think that we want to spend more time unmasking falsehoods than we do. I'm not saying you, but a lot of conversations right. around ethics are like, well, if if this weird situation occurs, should I lie then or not? Or, you know, if the priest has kidnapped my wife and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, well, and that's kind all... Of lifeboat ethics. Yeah, the lifeboat stuff. And that's all nonsense, right? We have more than enough sickness to get through in our lifetime before we get to the really obscure ailments, right? I mean, we've got a plague on our hands. We don't have to worry about the possibility of West Nile virus in 10 years, right? I mean, we've got people dropping down all around us. We've got wars and violence and, and predation uh, more than we could ever handle in our lifetime. And so I think that, uh, I know people get, you know, oh, I've got to tell the truth. It's like, oh, well, the first thing I need to do is, is, you know, call up the guy I lied to when I was 12 and tell him I'm sorry and so on and so on. It's like, well, maybe, but <laughs> I think that the most important thing to do is to, to deal with the most egregious lies in the world and unmask them as the predations that they are, the lies of the state and of God and of the family. And, and that we'll, we'll have our hands full uh, with that for the rest of our lives. I'm just curious, though, if you agree that, that honesty... The virtue of honesty begins with honesty in your own mind, honesty with, with yourself. Well, I, I, if you can tell me, I'm, I'm sure it does, but I'm not sure. I, I just want to make sure I understand what you mean by that. Uh, I mean, you say in the book, I'll quote it, the most important thing in life is not to lie to other people. Honesty is the most fundamental virtue. Uh, I, I, honesty is a virtue, again, is honesty in your own mind so you know reality, so you know the truth. 
And then integrity, perhaps, is bringing that into the world. And uh, you have integrity because you speak the truth to others, but you're honest with yourself. And your honesty also does apply to others. But I, I just see it as starting. People who lie to themselves will. It's, 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 it's part of lying to others. Yeah, no, there's a beautiful line out of Hamlet, spoken by the uh, old fool Polonius. But he says, uh, obviously, he says to his son Laertes, he says, um, uh, above all to thine own self, be true, for then it shall follow as night follows the day. Thou canst not be false to any man. And for right. sure, knowing thyself, knowing yourself, and being honest uh, with yourself means that you're less likely to be unconsciously manipulative of others through your own emotional defenses and so on. For sure, you have to know the truth and really know it, not just sort of know it intellectually, but you have to know it and feel it. Right? In order, you, you can't just lecture people into being good or to being better. Or to, you, ha- you have to be passionate about it. You have to care. You have to, you have to do it out of love in a weird kind of way, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And for sure, you have to have tasted... I mean, the, the way that we spread the truth is we love the truth. And the way that we love the truth is we get the beauty and joy of the truth in our own lives. And that's how we, that's how we become compelling um, in, in, in getting other people... I mean, if, if, I, if I find that chewing a particular root uh, cures, uh, uh, you know, tooth decay or whatever, uh, then I love the fact that I don't have tooth decay and I'm, I'm healthy and I'm not going to die at the age of 20 from some damn tooth infection, then I'm going to love that wonderful feeling and I'm going to want to share it with people. And yeah, they may spit on me and hate me and call me evil for doing it, but I know that if they just start chewing this root, they're going to feel so much less pain and they'll have all the joy that comes from, from good health and and that's really where it's, it's got to come from. But you have to experience that yourself first, right, in order, in order to really become right. compelling. And that, I think, and does to, require you live it for yourself. I'm sorry, go on. Well, exactly. Yeah. You, you need to, and rather than lecturing people, which usually doesn't work, just, just uh, living the truth in action and then speaking the truth uh, incidentally or, you know, forcefully when necessary. But, but just exhibiting the, the principles, I think, is, is leading by example is really what works. Yeah, I mean, if I found this magic root that prevents tooth decay, then, I mean, the first thing I've got to say to people is, I don't have any tooth decay, and man, it feels great. Now, some people will then say, well, how do you not get tooth decay? Because my teeth are killing me, right? (laughs) And then I can tell them. But if I just walk around lecturing everyone, then they'll be less likely. I have to sort of, especially if my own teeth are falling out, right? (laughs) I mean, then I'm not going to be very believable, right? Right. I have one more quick um, thing since I'm on here. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, uh, the, the whatever, uh, why people like that man who was, who, were, who was yelling at his children, why do they have children? Actually, you probably know the answers, but, um, but they have an exam in their own unhappy childhood. They're not, uh, they don't see how bad it was. They're just, they're just doing what's expected and repeating the patterns automatically without conscious deliberation, really. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. I think that's tr- I'm sorry, did you have something else? Yeah, or or they fall, or they they want to do better. Or, or I want to give my children a better childhood, but they fall automatically into the old patterns of domination because they just can't. They don't have the patience or the thought or knowledge to do it otherwise. Right. Well, I think that's uh, and you've you've read the book, right? So you know that there's this bit yep. about the transmission of knowledge in in a culture, right? That they're just photocopies, right? And I think that that's you know these kinds of people they have kids. Uh, because the kids are a value, right? That's what they believe. And they, they love America because America is a value. And, of course, they're told, to love Amer- they're told to love America, so they love America. And they're told, or everybody seems to believe, that having kids is a value, so they just go and have kids, right? They don't sort of say for themselves, what is it that I want out of this 20-year investment of time and energy and money? 
right? It's just like, well, what do you do? You have kids, right? You get married, you have kids, right? They're just sort of photocopying the values that are in the culture without asking themselves. And then, of course, that frustration at their own emptiness, they then take out on their kids, right? And, and it all starts I think again. I, re- I think I remember literally deciding in my mind when I was about 10 years old that I was not going to have kids, that I didn't want to put them through the school system. I didn't want to put them through all the humiliation, the, the lack of control over one's life. And, and some, I, I see that parenting often corrupts certain people, and I see people who don't have kids often as being seeming a little bit freer and just doing what they want and not being as domineering as the people who've had kids and been corrupted by that power, in a sense. Oh, for sure. It, if you don't know how to rationally and benevolently raise children, you absolutely should not have them, right? For the same reason that uh, you should not become a prison guard, right? Because it's going to mess <laughs> you up, right? You're going to do things that you regret. You're going to be tortured by guilt. You're going to live in fear, and you're going to become totally oppositional to philosophy and introspection because that is going to lead your children to condemn you, which you can't bear. So absolutely, if people don't know how to raise their children in a rational, productive, and that doesn't mean perfect, nobody's perfect, right? But in a a more or less healthy manner, uh, they absolutely should not have kids. They'll hurt the kids and they'll become uh, a real uh, cancer in the world, both with regards to their own children and with regards to our, you know, collective pursuit of truth as a whole. Right. I guess just one, one more question. Uh, are you going to have a big uh, a little party in Toronto sometime? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, actually, uh, I was talking to Greg, uh, just trying to sort of persuade him to, to come swinging up, and uh, we may have a barbecue in September, which, you know, will be obviously, uh, we'd be happy to have people come by who are in the neighborhood. It would be great to, to meet you all, and uh, okay. you could realize exactly why I'm a philosopher and not uh, a cook. So uh, that, would be, uh, that would be fun, and I'll, I'll keep you all posted on that on the boards. Okay, great. Well, that's all I have to say. Well, thanks very much. Uh, unless anybody else has any real yearning burnings, uh, we can uh, close off the show for, for today. Do you have uh, anybody else have anything that they're dying to get off their chest? <laughs> no, no, perhaps not there. Eh? All right, well, thanks again. I appreciate everybody who did vote for Free Domain Radio and the Podcast Awards. Uh, and uh, book sales are checking along. I certainly appreciate those who've ordered it. Um, you can order them in bulk and save some money if you want to uh, really please everybody with uh, end-of-the-summer gifts. And um, uh, thanks, everyone, for calling in today and uh, for being patient as I don't podcast, but I'll be back on uh, this week. So thanks, Emil, and uh, I, will, um, uh, I will talk to you all soon. Thanks so much. <laughs>